Friday, October the 15th, 2020. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of That's What G Said Podcast. It's a, another big one where we uh, touch base on a, a lot of different things. We're going to focus on NFL Week 6, horse racing, Friday, Saturday, Keeneland, Belmont, Santa Anita, and then we'll close things out with one of those old wrestling rewatches where uh, we talk about SummerSlam 93 with Darren Zocali and Andrew Champagne. We also have Alex Regla just to talk a little Lakers for a few minutes. So tons going on on this episode. Thanks for tuning in again. Don't forget about some of the great sponsors of That's What G Said. Make sure to support those who help support us. Thrive Fantasy, promo code G-I-N-O. We'll get you that bonus when you, you deposit at least 20 all the way up to 50. You'll get a, a bonus of whatever you deposit. Cindy Carava full-service realtor, cindycarava.com for all of your real estate needs. Old Smoke Clothing, promo code G-I-N-O, gets you free shipping on your order. And then our friends over at Sarah Candles, promo code G-I-N-O for those all-natural soy wax candles, 10% off your purchase. And we'll we'll talk about Stable Duel at the end with a This Week in Stable Duel segment. First up, a little baseball Disappointing so far for the uh, the Dodgers. Uh, so four teams left in in their quest to win a World Series in the National League. The Atlanta Braves have been the better team. Let's be honest. I'm a Dodger fan. I'm disappointed, but it's and there's a lot of nitpicking that could be done. Who's to blame? This and that. Dave Roberts, you upset with Kershaw, the lineup, Mookie Betts has struggled, the bullpen's been... You can, you can place blame on a lot. Here's what's the truth. It Through four games, Atlanta has been better. They've been better. They've been the better team in all facets, right? Their starting pitching's been better. They've had guys come up with big performances that haven't been there before. Their bullpen's been better. Their lineup, top to bottom, has been better with bigger, more timely hits. And when you flip it around for the Dodgers, even even on on the, the defensive side, the Braves' defensive positioning, their shifting's been better. They've made they haven't really made a lot of bonehead plays. Whereas we've seen the Dodgers, normally a very good fielding team, they've been sort of just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And can the Dodgers come back and win this series and win three in a row? Absolutely. Are they talented enough? Are they good enough? Sure. But they're when you when you get this far, you're in the final four here. These are good baseball teams. The Braves are trying to do the same thing the Dodgers are trying to do, right? They're trying to win. And now the script has been flipped a little bit because the Braves got through this game with without really having to get through their bullpen, like many of us thought. Because they got that great, great outing from the kid, Bryce Wilson. You know, he, he was awesome. And, I mean, one thing I guess I would nitpick is Kershaw. He gives you five innings. Good. He had his start push back because of the back injury. And, and I know a lot of people are going to want to rip on him and say playoff Kershaw. But he gives you five innings and he gives up one when you're the Dodgers and you have a lot of other options in the bullpen right now. Now, let's be honest, all of those options were awful the rest of the game through I just I don't like the idea of you know forcing it a little bit more with Kershaw I listened to some of Dave Roberts comments after the game and what he said was and and he's not really wrong in saying this you bring Kershaw out in the top of the sixth I'm fine with that I'm fine with actually leaving him in until there's a a runner on base and what was unfortunate is 
the first runner on base that inning was an error. It was going to be a really tough play to short. It was a, a high chopper that bounced over Kershaw's head, and then it was a, a, a poor throw. And so now you get the runner to second. And then next up, it was a, a hard hit ball over towards first. But again, it was a, just your two steps the wrong way. It, and that turns into, you know, both those plays could be outs. So I can understand what, what Roberts was saying. I just, this guy has been hurt in the last couple of days. He, he had his start pushed back. You just didn't need to ask for a little bit more from him. But again, every Dodger reliever that came into the game tonight, Either allowed an earn around and allowed a run or an inherited run. So, all of the options the Dodgers had tonight, everything, everyone they went to, they all struggled. And you know, Mookie, two for fourteen so far throughout the series. The bats were real quiet after waking up uh, last night for a little while. So it's what happens in a series against good teams. It's back and forth. It's punch. It's punch back. And right now, the Braves have punched. A little bit harder and I can the Dodgers punch back I think so but they definitely no doubt about it have to play better than they've been playing right now it looks like they're gonna have uh, Dustin May lined up and and then Bueller to come back if they were able to uh, get get by in game five and then it would probably be Gonsolin Urias and you know if they could get some inf- you know anything from Kurt, it would be all hands on deck you know if they were able to get to a, a game seven and on the other side the Astros are making a uh, a little bit of a comeback. They were down three games to none. They've won two in a row now. It's three games to two. They had an, uh, a home run to open the game and then a walk-off home run. So they've been hitting the ball pretty well. And now Tampa's probably getting a little bit anxious, a little bit nervous, but the Astros still have to come back and double what they've done, right? They've got to win two more games in a row now against a very good Tampa team. So we'll see next week. We'll have a World Series to uh, discuss talk about what happened for both the NLCS and the ALCS and we'll see if either these Dodgers or Astros can make a comeback because so far the the Braves and the Rays have been the better teams throughout you know in in the, the games they've won there's been nothing fluky about this and you know I think uh, it, when you have close games that or you know one decision either way here or there we can we can do a little bit more nitpicking but so far the Atlanta Braves have been the better team and so far the Rays have been in that series has been a little closer but the Rays has been uh, the better team there you can create your own team each and every week with Thrive Fantasy so I know a lot of you out there are big fantasy sports fans right you play in year long fantasy leagues or maybe daily fantasy sites all over the place there's a new one I want you to, to check out I play in it all the time it's called Thrive Fantasy and what's great about Thrive Fantasy is it is you know based on prop betting prop wagering props in general so if you are someone who does a lot of prop wagering you will really like this site thrive fantasy you can get in contests for as little as a dollar or two all the way up to playing in head-to-heads or groups of three or five for a thousand a lot of their big contests range for around 25 dollars or so and they have two thousand five thousand dollars in prizes uh each week um you know the nfl right now is is their big contest where they have and they also have these daily baseball contests all different sports going on when golf's rolling they have a golf contest going to thrive fantasy when you use the promo code gino you're gonna get a bonus uh an instant bonus credit uh when you deposit anything up to 50 bucks 
G-I-N-O. Anything up to 50 bucks, it has to be at least 20. So between 20 and 50, you get that instant bonus credit, G-I-N-O. It's Thrive Fantasy. Let me know if you have any questions about it. Uh, Love checking out the the Thrive Fantasy daily games each and every day. We're going to do some videos starting uh, the next few weeks with Thrive Fantasy and uh, show you what the app actually looks like, how to get involved in a contest, and maybe even give you some thoughts on some plays in some of these contests each week. Let's move to the NBA. and uh, I'm going to have a big NBA Lakers celebration coming up next week. So over the weekend, I'm going to work on uh, getting a lot of different guests, a lot of people who are Laker fans to, you know, come on for a few minutes, share some of their thoughts and uh, things that they'll remember about this year and this Lakers title run. Any of you out there listening, if you're a big Laker fan and you want to be a part of it, contact me, let me know. I'll set something up with you where you can come on for a a couple minutes and share some of your uh, Laker thoughts and for some of his Laker thoughts. Our good buddy Alex Regla, we had to celebrate with him a little bit and spend a few minutes relishing in the Laker victory. Kick back and enjoy this conversation with Alex Regla. Love saying this out loud. The Lakers are the world champions and it was a NBA season that spanned basically an entire calendar year with all sorts of turmoil and in particular for the Lakers the you know the question of can LeBron get this team back to where we as Laker fans all have been familiar with them being right at the top battling for championships after 6 years of no playoffs the Lakers are back the man who always talks Lakers with us and has been over the last couple of years with me is here to celebrate a championship Alex the Lakers are the champs how do you feel and it feels great um I know it happened Sunday but yeah like it's still it still feels fresh and like you're saying like what a crazy year it's been like you said it's been the longest year of basketball and like we've been with this team for through everything so it's incredible to see them you know have this result at the end of it and it's 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 nice for on so many levels because I think for me and we'll talk a little bit about games five and six in a second but for me the I think one of the things that I I like um, a lot about this championship is obviously LeBron you know finals MVP and probably the MVP of the league again this year Anthony Davis defensive player of the year in my opinion I think many you know both of them were, were probably shorted on their awards but hey we'll take this title instead of those awards but. It was such a team overall. I think from the top, from Genie to Rob to um, you know Frank Vogel coming in to the coaching staff to LeBron AD to the KCPs, the Carusos, the Kuzmas, the Morrises coming in to Dwight to Jared Dudley being just an amazing leader. You know, on the bench, it really felt like one of those where you look back and you think of the Kobe Shaq days, but you remember. Rick Fox, you remember Robert Ory hitting big shots. You remember Derek Fisher. You know, it it feel it really feels like that from top to bottom with this group. Yeah, I actually went back and I rewatched um, Frank Vogel's introductory press conference because I'm writing something on the season. And yeah, something he just preached a lot in that introduction was togetherness, and basically togetherness top to bottom, right from the front office down to the coaching staff to the players. And I think, like you said, that's something that was apparent all year. This team, this front office, and this whole organization have been on the same page. There's been no backstabbing drama. 
nothing. It's just everyone working towards one singular goal. And yeah, I mean, they reached it and they did it together. And I think that was what's going to be so memorable about this team. It, you know, and, and especially for someone like you who is so into, you know, um, analytic and diving deep into the numbers and, and breaking things down and, and, and looking at different sets of numbers over and all, over again. It's crazy because um, I think one thing that us Laker fans knew when we were watching this group all along is we knew that intangible chemistry was there. We could tell from the beginning this group liked each other. Just like you said, they all really bought in. And that's something that doesn't show up. In numbers, you know, that's something that's just It's like an intangible thing that you can't put your finger on You compare that to a group like the Clippers Who, you know what, everybody picked Everybody said was deeper on paper They were better, they had more But when it came down to it Especially in a situation like this bubble mm-hmm. Our guys just felt like they liked each other more Than than a lot of the other groups did And I think, like you said, in a bubble And in this kind of circumstance and environment Those things kind of weigh more, right? Like you're Mm -hmm. stuck with these guys in one place for months And if you don't like each other Or also if you don't have really experience playing with each other Like the Clippers, you know, either through rest or injuries or whatever They didn't have a lot of on-court experience with each other They didn't really go through a lot of the fires the Lakers did together And I think that kind of ended up, you know Hurting them in the long run Where the Lakers They came into this environment Where it was totally weird And unexpected And difficult for everyone But they've gone through it together They've gone through so much together That it kind of really prepared them In a weird way To deal with the unexpected And I think that showed In each and every round of the playoffs That this team is one unit And they could adapt when need be I am so impressed and and like a new level of respect for the Heat. Um, I, I honestly, because one of those things where you know you play them a couple times, you watch the the Eastern playoffs and you're watching the series, but you just don't know how it's going to match up a lot of the time. And is one conference much better than the other? And what Jimmy Butler was able to do in a couple of these games and in, in Game Five. You know what it does is it a few things. First, it it raises Jimmy Butler up a couple levels to me of of overall. Like where does he stack in the hierarchy of the best players in the league? But two, it really shows how damn impressive LeBron is because most guys would be like Butler. They can't if they if they had a game like Butler did and left it all on the floor like he did in Game Five. You're gonna come back in Game Six and you're gonna be sore. You're gonna be banged up. You're gonna be tired. You're gonna be run down. And to see how LeBron is able to just go out every night in big situations and just put up another big effort, it was it did it did both for me. You know, I was more impressed with yeah. Butler and then more impressed with LeBron at the same time. It was really fun to watch, right? Like that was a game five when it was just back and forth mm-hmm. down the stretch between those two guys. It's incredible. Like you said, with the Heat and Butler and spe- like specifically, like I've been so impressed by them and their resilience. And in a lot of ways, they do remind me of the Lakers this year. You know. They're just hardworking, play defense, play as a team, and they have a guy like Butler who just leads them down the stretch. And like you said, to see LeBron not only match him, but you know, kind of outperform in a lot of those games, it's it was incredible to watch from a guy who's definitely on the older side of his career, but still doesn't look like to be slowing down at all. Which is the guy, the guy's like a cyborg, so it's yeah. it should be expected by now. In the 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 emotion and the difference from game five to game six, you know, just for a Laker fan, you know, I, it wasn't as if we we lost game five. 
It wasn't a game that the Lakers blew They were up big the whole game or anything It was a very good back and forth game Where Miami played excellent And I think the Lakers had opportunities to win Obviously Danny Green you know, had the wide open shot Morris throws it away late But they, there were a lot of things in the fourth quarter A lot of opportunities that they, they may have had Nonetheless, it was it was a gut-wrenching loss It was one of those where And then you start wondering and you start worrying a little bit You go, uh-oh You know, Even, even though we all, you know, you thought The Lakers are going to come back and win you just there's a little seed of doubt sewn into your head where you go, God, this team is tough. They battle. You never know. And then to come out in Game Six and just do something that was like it's still mind-boggling to me, and it doesn't feel real that they were up 36 points at one time in that game. Yeah, I think it just goes to show that, like, even after that loss, this team wasn't really impacted or no, it, like they weren't like a lot of other teams. It feels like if they lose that game. They come out scared, you know. Completely agree. Yeah, and then they just did the complete opposite. They're like, you know what? They they just seem pissed off and like mad at themselves. They didn't win in five games, so they just took care of business. Is that something they've done all year? Like it's just it was so impressive that they just came out there and they almost treated it like it was just a regular season game. Like we're just better than you. Like we're just gonna end it right here. Even Vogel, it's like, hey, it's game six of the finals. I'm gonna make a, a change to the starting lineup right now. I'm going to put somebody in the starting lineup that has not started all year long. I'm going to put Caruso in there. We're going to go a little bit smaller. You know, Dwight, you helped us a lot in the last series get here, but they don't really have as many. I mean, he coached all season long. And I was, there's a, he was just on the Zach Lowe podcast, uh, Vogel, and it was, it's a really good conversation for like 35 minutes. And he talks all about everything that goes on from throughout the year. And you could tell that he, like, his mindset, is so great. He's so even keeled. He just came into this going, "Hey, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to try to instill what I do here. I'm not going to get caught up in all the BS, and if if it doesn't work, I'm going to get canned any you know, anyway. So I'm going to come in here and try to do my thing." And he came in, he in defense. He was so level-headed. He's another guy that I feel I I want to make sure that so many of these people get a little bit of credit and two of them in particular, you know, Vogel and Rob because these are two guys that not only did people kind of roll their eyes at the beginning of the year and in the offseason, the people went out of their way to attack these guys, to really badmouth them, to laugh at the Lakers and, and say, this is your coach. What is he, your third choice? Look what he just did with Orlando and not even understand the situation that that was a team that was trying to tank in some cases, not understand that. Vogel the last couple years has really Studied the way the game has changed He's talked about that a lot People were saying that Palinka didn't know the cap I mean he doesn't know The salary cap they're saying yes this guy Who was Kobe's agent so these two guys I'm so happy for them because Not only were they like People said eh people went out of their Way to to downgrade them and to Take shots at them and say these guys are Never going to be winners of a championship yeah, 100% agree. Like I said, I invite a lot of people to go back and watch that introductory press conference with Frank because Rob is sitting right next to him. And people forget that morning, Magic Johnson went on ESPN mm-hmm. and kind of just bashed the Lakers once again, even after he resigned publicly. So that press conference is really hard and awkward to watch because it's like Frank sitting there while you know the interviewers are asking Rob right in front of him about the other coaches they thought they were going to hire instead of him. And then what Frank does is just is just this calming person. And even then, like even looking back all the way then, he 
it's the same guy now as he was then. He said, we're going to play defense. We have to be together as an organization. And everything he preached during when he was introduced kind of came to fruition now. And same with Rob. Like you said, just take a look at the, the Lakers' current uh, salary. You know, like they, they're going to be set up for 2021. All these deals they signed last summer were specifically two-year deals with the attention of what they're going to do in free agency upcoming. And just this team is set up really well to get even better next season, which is saying something. And you already got the title in the bag, you know, things you're always getting, everyone's going to be a little easier on you after you win one for a while. So so really happy for the both of them. And, um, you know, it was was one of those things where it's unfortunate with, um, Everything that happened, uh, obviously, with with the pandemic and the way the season the season was broken up, but it it made this journey, like you said, I think it it, it was something that maybe even helped the Lakers. The length of this, we're talking about Jul- like really July when the season started of a year and a half ago, when you know AD comes to the Lakers, when they're thinking, are we going to get Kawhi? That's when everything really started. <laughs> really. And it was so long ago for us to be here now, um, sitting where we are. It's just, it's really incredible. And, and you know, as, as fans who have been through the last six or seven years, I know uh, people around in other franchises don't want to hear the Laker fans complain, but Alex, this was not like, oh, we missed the playoffs for a year. We're talking about the worst collection of six years in the history of the Lakers. They continue, they broke their records every year. All the bad records, the most losses, the least wins, like the games when they were eliminated from the playoffs, the earliest things like that that we never wanted. You know, we were watching, I, I drove to Vegas and watched the, the summer league games, yeah. you know, and saw D'Angelo, Kuzma there, you know, Randall and, and Lonzo, all these guys. And um, we were watching the lottery balls bouncing and seeing what was going to happen for the first time. It is pretty incredible that it was just one season. For the Lakers to get back and win, it it usually does not happen that way in the NBA. Yeah, like I don't like we shouldn't take this for granted, right? No. Like that's something uh, LeBron was even saying after they won the Western Conference Finals was like they're gonna enjoy this night because this isn't something that happens every year, and that's coming from a guy who literally was in the play in the finals for like ten straight years. Mm-hmm. Like it's really hard, and like obviously we're not like other franchises where you know they have never even made to the finals, but. We saw firsthand these last six, you know, seven years of just lottery and turmoil in the front office and just rebuilding and different head coaches that, yeah, it's we got a wake up call how hard this actually is. I think that that's why this one feels even sweeter. It really it really does. And, um, you know, is uh, we you know, we we talk a bunch and we will. This isn't going to be a lot of X and O's type thing. This is just uh, celebrating some of the Lakers. So um, what you know, just one or two things before I let you go. What are what are some of the things you are going to really remember back about this run this year? Anything little specific? I mean, even even like one or two things for me, it's damn how wrong I was about Rondo. You know, something like that. <laughs> you know, when he when he came like when we needed him, he was there. KCP, you know, look, things like that Stepping up um, Anything that you are just along the, the way Along the journey going to always remember about this one In particular I, I think it's the defense, honestly oh, yeah. That that oh. was their calling card all From year Day one Yeah, no, yeah, and I think a lot of people going into the season They see LeBron AD on the same team They think this team's just going to score a ton of points And, you know, really, it wasn't even the offense That 
beat teams this year. It was how good their defense was. And that was, like you said, from night one. And that's something Frank Vogel instilled to this team. Another thing that people literally, not only did people say our defense wouldn't be good, they said it would be horrible. LeBron doesn't try on defense anymore. AD's not going to really care. He's going to be out around the perimeter. Who's going to stop any guards? Who who do you have there? I mean, what? Bradley can't guard anyone anymore. And, And a lot of people just don't give credit, very much credit to the, there are three or four guys that were consistently going to give you a good defensive effort on this team. You always got it from Caruso. You always got it from Danny Green. You always got it from KCP. And when you have a couple guys like that that you know every night you're going to get it from, then then of course Anthony Davis is is not only going to give you that. He's going to give you an incredible effort, like more than 100. percent And LeBron's able to turn it on. We talked about the improvement from Kuzma. You start looking at a roster that people laughed at and said they can't play defense. Well. You have seven or eight guys on this team Throw Dwight Howard in the mix When he's you know playing defense Now all of a sudden this, The personnel was there And people didn't really think so So it's I'm, You know I'm loving seeing a lot of the receipts this week As Laker fans I'm sure <laughs> you are Because people loved attacking us Over the last few years When we were down And, and rightfully so right We were down mm-hmm. And we were bad and, and it was Like what people were saying was right There was turmoil Things were not looking good We would get a Nice draft pick we'd get excited and then they'd Get hurt Julius I remember Like right off the bat how bad that was In this what the first game of the year And then Lonzo every time he would look Like he was about to turn the corner he would get hurt And Ingram did the same thing he was having The best stretch of his career two years In a row and then he would get hurt just we would We would get these glimpses in these moments And then they would be dashed and you'd Get right back and in the same place It's just it's incredible to be here And I'm, I'm, you know, you've been a, become a really good friend Over the last couple of years talking Lakers We talked some Dodgers, talking wrestling And I'm glad we, like j- like any team Or any relationship or anything I'm glad we got to share in the downs Before the ups Because it's, it, like you said, it makes the ups feel so much better And and we, you know, we got to talk about Some of the worst stuff It was incredible <laughs> to be able to talk about Some good basketball with you this year yeah, man, like I said, you guys are my first podcast appearance ever, and um, I've been fortunate to be on here so many, you know, so many times to talk basketball with you, and it's crazy how much has changed over the years, personally, and with you, I know you have, you know, you have a kid now, I, I actually just got engaged over the weekend. Oh, wow, congratulations, man. Thank you. Yeah, and like, it just goes to show how much can change over one year, right? Yeah. So, yeah, this has just been incredible, and like I said, it's been fun to share this with you guys on, on the show, and on Twitter and through my writing. So I'm just really, you know, fortunate and grateful for, for this show and just everybody who listens and everybody who reads my stuff. Yeah. You do a great job. Um, I was, it was, I, honestly, I would just read some of your stuff and it was great. I just, I enjoyed it and reached out to you and there weren't a lot of, uh, we were, we were just kind of getting started. We didn't have a lot of basketball people. And I was like, you know what? I love this guy's stuff. I'd love to talk Lakers with him. And it, it's been, uh, it's been great ever since. And hopefully got to keep our fingers crossed. We're recording this Wednesday afternoon. We need a Dodger. Uh, we're, we're about 10 minutes before the oh, Dodgers. Yeah, uh, <laughs> get, we need it. We need a big bounce back here. They got to win this next game at least and two in a row now would be nice to kind of set the series back and we'll talk some wrestling sometime soon. We don't really know the NBA sort of right now is up in the air because we don't really know. I think they're saying like, you know, aiming for maybe MLK day as, as a possible target unofficial day. I'm I'm hearing even later than that. It's, it's going to be probably a year or two before we maybe even get back into a a normal and or what the NBA schedule used to be. If it ever is, you know, it it may kind of slightly be altered a little different because I know that's something Adam Silver's always kind of wanted to be more of like December through 
July, maybe into the into some of those baseball months where there's not a whole lot going on. Yeah, who knows? Like, I, I honestly hope it's not yeah. too long from now because, yeah, when there's no basketball and no baseball, things get rough. But, mm-hmm. yeah, so hopefully it's not too long, and hopefully I can come back on here and talk Lakers with you sooner than later. Anytime. Give us your plugs again one more time for the uh, social media and the newsletter and everything you got going on. Cool. Yeah, so you guys can follow me on Twitter at Alex M. Regla. And then I do have a newsletter. It's called Throwdowns. It's free, throwdowns.substack. And I'm currently writing like kind of like an afterword, kind of like a – encapsulation of the season because it's been insane like I, again i go back and start with that press conference and see how far we've come so you guys can find that i think it comes out either tomorrow or uh maybe thursday or friday so yeah keep an eye out for that we'll definitely be uh pushing that and, and tweeting and retweeting and all that stuff alex man thank you so much for coming on with me every time this this was one of the best ones, you know, maybe one of the shorter ones, but we, we didn't we didn't need to talk X's and O's. This was just to <laughs> kind of share in some of the cool moments of, of this year. And uh, and I'm, I'm glad, again, if we could get a Dodger one, that would be great. But you know what? It's weird because I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling greedy right now. I'm just going to try to soak this in and be very happy we were able to get this Laker one. Yeah, man. Thank you again for everything. Have a nice one, Alex. Uh, folks, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back on That's What G Said. One of the longtime sponsors of That's What G Said podcast, Cindy Carava is a full service realtor and can help you with all of your real estate needs. You can contact her, cindyc.realtor at gmail.com or the website, cindycarava.com. Anything that you need at all. If you need help, you know, just finding vendors, handymen, painters, landscapers, she can help you with things like that. Uh, if you help need, Getting pre-approved for a home loan. She can connect you with lenders that she works closely with. She covers San Gabriel Valley, North San Diego County, Del Mar, Solana Beach, Rancho Santa Fe. Uh, This is a full-service realtor. We're talking selling, purchasing, and leasing. Any questions at all, shoot her an email or just check out the website, cindycarava.com. A big thank you to Alex. Love talking Lakers and NBA with Alex. Make sure to give him a follow on social media. Great follow for you, uh, NBA fans and you Laker fans. Let's move on over to NFL Week 6 coming up. And uh, we have a, a weird schedule coming up in, in, in the NFL. So keep in mind that because of the last few weeks with all the different things happening with the, the COVID cancellations, pushbacks, there, some of these games have been changed. The schedule has been changed a little bit. So, um, again, this week there will be two Monday night games. There's no Thursday night game this weekend, so we didn't have a Thursday night game to recap here on this show. And we now have four undefeated teams. We've got the Steelers are four and zero. The Titans are four and zero, and the Titans, who are one of the uh, the teams that didn't really follow the rules, and sort of the reason why a lot of teams have had to have their schedules maneuvered. The Packers are 4-0 and the Seahawks are 5-0. We've got three winless teams. Falcons, Jets, and Giants all winless. We are into week six for the NFL. Let's discuss the slate this week. So we've got Carolina versus the Bears. And this game is Carolina now minus one and a half. You can get it at one in some places too. And this has moved down from Carolina minus three. They are at home. Uh, Carolina is at home playing the Bears. And I just, I'm not a big Bears fan at all. The total in this game is 45. And 
I'm going to steer away from that, but I'm playing the Carolina side in this game for sure. Look around for the ones in here. I like Carolina. I think they're the better team. Carolina could easily have just one loss on the year that opening week. They were right in that game with the Raiders. Since then, they've improved a ton on defense. They look like they've bought into the coach. Ever since McCaffrey went down, this team has sort of rallied around each other. They don't make a ton of mistakes. They've played smart football. I like Carolina in here. Minus the one. Give me Carolina in uh, the first game of NFL Week 6. Let's go to Game 2. It's the Colts, minus 7.5 against the Bengals. You can get some 8s up on the board. I just don't... I'm only going to have a couple plays this week. I don't really have a strong opinion in this one. It feels about right to me. The Colts are going to look back at this early part of their schedule and really kick themselves for not maybe being undefeated at this point. And they, they, you would imagine they have to come out and play a little bit better. The Bengals really got beat up last week running into a, a Ravens uh, buzzsaw. So it, it, I just I don't get a feel for this game. It, it, it feels about right to me. Total 46 and a half. So um, Colts minus seven and a half, minus eight uh, versus the Bengals over under 46 and a half. I would, I would lean towards the the Colts at, at a seven number, but those numbers aren't up on the board and you won't find them. So at seven and a half, if you had to, I would probably be on the Bengals side. But again, to me, that number feels about right. I don't have a, a side either way. It is weird when you when you look and see that the, the Giants are a two-and-a-half point, three-point favorite in some places. They're playing the, the Washington football team, and it does look like Kyle Allen will be the starting quarterback for them. Total in that one is uh, 43, and... I just I steer clear with the with a game like this with these two teams. The Giants can move the football at times. Washington's defense is their strength. They have not been able to move the football really at all, and the Giants' defense has been maybe a little bit better. So you know I understand the Giants being you know slightly favored in here, but it just feels weird when they're you know to see such a bad team ever laying a field goal or two and a half points. I just a total stay away for me in this game and the total very low of of 43. The Steelers Browns, I'm very interested in this game, but not from a wanting to play it at this number. I I like Cleveland. I really do. I think Cleveland is a is a good football team. I don't know if they're like a Super Bowl contender type, but what I like about Cleveland is they they're just they do a few things well. In the last few years about with Cleveland, they they haven't been that way. Now they're they're secondary and they're is is not great and they're pretty bad against the pass. But they have a good defensive front. They're going to get some pressure on you with Garrett. They can run the hell out of the ball. And their wep- their playmakers this year looked like they are m- in much better sync with Baker, right? They're not asking Baker to do a whole lot. This is going to be a really tough spot for Cleveland because they're playing a Pittsburgh defense that's pretty good. They can get after you too. But I like Cleveland in here. This number has gone down from Pittsburgh minus 5 to Pittsburgh minus 3.5, 4. And if you want to play this game, I would lean Cleveland even at anything over like at three and a half. That that would be fine. I wouldn't bet it because I just don't like. I'm I don't like that I missed the number uh, being a better number. But I feel Cleveland's going to play really really well in here. And if they beat the Steelers, can you imagine? Now we're going to start to really hear about ah, are the Cleveland Browns are the Cleveland Browns for real? How good is this team? So big weekend for them. And um, I'm just. 
the Steelers sort of play to the competition of whoever they're playing, and they're it's kind of quietly very good to it. And this is the first time Ben Roethlisberger's ever been 4 0. So if you get that extra hook, I would lean Cleveland, but not going to make it a play in here because we didn't get the best number. So um, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, and to me, probably one of the more intriguing games of the weekend. How about the Vikings minus four? against the Falcons and we get the Falcons firing their coach so maybe we're going to get that coach bump that we played last week with the Texans I think we will and this is a case of me again not thinking Minnesota is that good although Minnesota played pretty well last week but I look at these two teams and the one thing that Atlanta does well is they can move the ball they can in particular through the air even when they're you know missing a receiver or two and it looks like Julio is going to be back this weekend. So I think Atlanta will be able to score because Minnesota is going to give up big plays. We saw last week with what Russ was able to do to them late, even after Minnesota was playing well. And I think that was a case too of Seattle really not not playing that great. I like the, the four. This thing has gone up now after the firing of uh, Dan Quinn to four four and a half in some places so look for the four and a half if you can find them four is fine let's take the falcons plus the four maybe they get a little uh, rejuvenated now with uh, the firing of their coach we generally see this all the time and again this is just a, a not thinking a whole lot of this minnesota team feels like a team that atlanta will be able to move the ball and attack baltimore at Philly, Baltimore is a seven and a half point favorite at Philly. The total in this one is 47. In that Vikings Falcons game, the total is 54 and a half. Steelers Browns, that one is 51 uh, around. So Baltimore minus seven and a half at Philly, over under 47 and a half here. I'd lean Philly, not going to make it a play. The the extra hook hook if you could you know you can find eight in some places but the extra half of point here to get you to seven and a half I think is a, a major plus if you're on the Philly side so if you like Philly try to get that before it go if it before you know you don't want it to get down to seven or six and a half obviously but it the numbers don't usually move away from Baltimore all that much uh, they're a, a pretty popular team and so yeah another if you're Philly you got to look around at the division again. Somebody's going to get a win between Washington and the Giants. And then Dallas now with losing Dak. If you're Philly again, you got to really feel like you got a big opportunity. But this is going to be a tough spot for them, even at home. Um, maybe they can keep it closer. Yeah, at 7.5, I'd lean Philly, but no play for me. I'll just have three actual plays today. We get to Denver, New England. Or no, excuse me. Let's go to, yeah, Denver, New England. This one is... The Patriots uh, minus nine and a half, nine, nine and a half. You find in some spots, it is total of 45 in here. Just a, a real, real stay away for me. So many question marks in and out of the lineup with, with different key players in here. What are we going to get from Cam, who has, you know, recently had COVID? 
what's going to happen with Locke, some of the key position players for the Broncos. This game is just an absolute stay away for me. Melvin Gordon has had the uh, the personal issues recently too. So just if you're playing from a fantasy perspective, make sure to check all the players in, in this game. This is one of them that um, I'm just not going to play a- any side in, in this one. We move to Lions, Jags. Lions are a three, three and a half point favorite at Jacksonville here. Total in this one is 54 and a half. I, again, just another, you know, another game I don't really have a, a feel for in here. The Lions are the better team. The Jags defense is awful. I, you look at the total at, at 54 and a half, and that's just very, very high, but it feels like a game with two teams that are going to score a lot of points in here. No side, no strong opinion, no way to lean in this one. So Lions, Jags, yeah, just feels like a game with, with points to me, but minus three, I could just, I, I'm not ready to trust the Lions in a spot like this as a road favorite, but the, the Jags recently after week one have not looked good so i just can't really get behind either uh, of these sides in here i will get behind and we'll, we'll roll right back with the texans one more time it's titans minus three and a half against the texans in here and so you're the texans you're a plus three and a half point underdog and this is a spot where the texans generally do well i think as a slight underdog against a team that's not I'm still not quite ready to crown Tennessee one of the best teams in football or this incredibly dominant team. I think they they're coming off a big win, so a lot of people are you know going to jump on them, and that's why this line has moved the point from two and a half up to three and a half. The Texans now coming off of a win, are they going to get a little more confident? This is a team divisional rival that they play. They know each other. This game could be close, so the three and a half is great. But I think the Texans actually could win this game too so at plus three and a half look for houston in uh houston going on the road to play the tennessee titans we go to the dolphins how about this the dolphins are a nine and a half point favorite you know when i talked about the sort of the the scheduling overall you know some of the games in the the year-long schedule have been moved and and team schedules have been moved around a little bit but as far as the weekend schedule is concerned too it it looks like there's only going to be two of the later afternoon games with the Jets Miami and the Packers Tampa and then the night game of the Rams 49ers and then the two Monday night games so we actually are going to only have two of those games going in the afternoon in that you know, four o'clock Eastern time window, which is Dolphins minus nine versus the Jets. The Dol- this is up to ten in some places. Nine and a half, ten. So Miami's coming off that big win against the the 49ers, and the Jets are just the Jets. They are miserable. Total in this one is forty seven. I uh another one where if if I'm taking a side, I could not be could not be laying that many points with the Dolphins. How can you play the Jets, though? Is there anything that the Jets have done that, that inspires you? The number players, uh, you know, would love the Jets. I just got to stay away. 
got to stay away. Really intrigued by the Packers-Tampa game. This one has moved now to Packers minus one. It started at Tampa as a two and a half point favorite and has moved all the way to Packers minus one. Another game where you have a lot of skill position players that you make sure to keep it an eye on because we don't know we know some of the receivers for both of these teams have been in and out of the lineup two of the all-time great quarterbacks total is 55 in here and as the the only other game going in at you know four o'clock eastern time ish starting when i'm sure many people will be watching this game and not the jets miami game if you know if i'm if i'm p- taking a side in here i'm taking tampa this just feels like another case where tampa played poorly last time we saw them they lost to the bears green bay's looked so good recently every time we've seen them in a big spot they've looked great and so if you're a tampa fan or if you're a, a you know if you like tampa in this spot you have to love what's happened and you're just giving giving yourself you know you earned yourself a few few free points here by waiting this out a little bit because the money's been heading on the green bay side we move to the sunday night football game we've got the rams and they are think about how crazy in just like six weeks of this season the rams are a three to three and a half point favorite on the road against the 49ers who coming into the year Super Bowl team from last year looked so great on paper, but they've been banged up. Then Jimmy G looked bad. They've just had so many issues here. I I cannot play this line though. And I'm a Rams fan. This is a total stay away. I hope the Rams win. If if you're a, if you're a 49ers fan, a 49ers player in this game, and by player, I mean someone who's going to be playing the game, wagering on this game. You once you see plus three and a half, you have to be ecstatic here. You you got to assume that the 49ers have a little bit something left. Is there, is Jimmy G just hurt, banged up, struggling? They you know they've had to go through three quarterbacks so far already this year, based on either injury or just you know struggling benching. Another game that I'll be intrigued as a fan, but just watching. We have the two Monday night games, Chiefs minus four at the Bills. I really do feel bad for the Bills. They got their butts kicked. It's actually up to four and a half now. Uh, Kansas City is a four and a half point favorite on the road playing Buffalo. They got their butts kicked by Tennessee, but everything changed for the Bills. And that game kept getting moved around. They didn't know if they were going to play. They were thinking about maybe having a game with Kansas City that would have been, you know, on Thursday. That game got moved around. Now it's going to be on Monday because they played on Tuesday. I, I'm just not a fan of the teams having to shift their schedule around because one team really messed up. The the to me, what seems the most fair is if everybody's got the rules to 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 play by in this case to live by if you want to play football because that's what the athletes in the bubble did for the nba for the nhl soccer players uh did the same thing uh, all of all baseball in the playoffs have had to do the same same type of thing if you don't want to be here and you don't want to follow the rules you you should be punished and you know tennessee i wouldn't have minded had they forfeited a game to be honest based on what they did with having to screw the whole schedule up and it affected a team like the Bills 
quite a bit. Now they got a huge spot here. So what happens to the Bills? You know, things got changed for them. And now you got Kansas City waiting in the wings. This is not an easy spot for them. I uh, I do think the Bills can keep it close. And to be honest, Kansas City hasn't been extremely impressive. When you when you look up and down like throughout the league, Kansas City and Baltimore, sure, they beat up on, on teams they're better than. But overall, they haven't been incredible and fluid and top to bottom. And really, who who has? Who terrifies you, right? Seattle and Green Bay have great offenses, but defensively, did they scare you? I mean, do they feel like unbeatable teams? Feels like there's a lot of parity in the NFL this year. Final game will be the second Monday night game. It is Arizona versus Dallas. Dallas was a three-point favorite, but this money has flipped quite a bit because it's going to be Andy Dalton. We do not have Dak Prescott in there after that unfortunate injury last week so Arizona as a one one and a half point favorite here and uh, that's just again if you're an Arizona fan if you're an Arizona player in this game that's a lot to have to have given up you're probably just thinking Arizona is going to win and they're better here but keep in mind if Dallas is able to run the ball they still have the skilled receivers and Dalton isn't some nobody backup he's a he feels like a very capable backup for someone who's been around a lot you know do you you're gonna go win a Super Bowl with Andy Dalton at this point of his career probably not but if offensively he feels like he's in a good spot offensively right he doesn't have to play defense all he has to do is hand the ball off make good throws hopefully his wide receivers get open not turn the ball over and for as good as Dak's been Dallas has turned the ball over a hell of a lot this year so I don't know how big of a drop-off it's going to be in that. Is your upside anywhere close? Of course not. But we're not talking about a Dallas team that's been incredible, right? They haven't been that great. So as long as they're just eh and beat some of their division rivals that they're better than, they're going to be okay. This is an interesting one because, again, Arizona, they're getting a little, a little more rep. I played Arizona last week. They haven't looked great, really, at all. And we look back now at their San Francisco win, and if San Francisco's struggling this year, it isn't that good. Is that win as good as it feels? Is Arizona consistent enough? They just they feel like this is a great spot for them. So the three plays for me this week, Carolina minus one and a half, the Falcons plus four, the Texans plus three and a half. Three plays in NFL week six. Before we move along and start talking horse racing, let's talk a little bit about horse racing swag, t-shirts, horse with horse names, polos, hoodies, long sleeves, zip-ups, hats with big races, slogans, the way to show the horse racing fan in you. It's oldsmokeclothing.com. The holidays are coming up and if you are a fan of horse racing, if your dad, your mom, your brother, your sister, your your boyfriend, girlfriend, any of your friends are, this is a great spot to get them some Christmas gifts. Uh, plenty of selections for you on different t-shirts, different ideas. And when you use the promo code GINO, 
free shipping. Yes, no shipping cost when you use that promo code G-I-N-O. If you're a fan of Tis the Law, Authentic, Midnight Bisu, Bob Baffert, any of them different t-shirts with names, a silhouette of Baffert's face, new shipments in of trucker hats um, with uh, the 1-1-A patch, Really, really great stuff for horse racing fans. OldSmokeClothing.com. Remember to use that promo code G-I-N-O. It will get you free shipping on your orders. Let's get into the horse racing part of this conversation. And we're going to start with Friday Horse Racing over at Keeneland. So let's go to uh, right to race number one. Got to clear the voice. Right to race number one. And I'm going to go to Grapevine. This is a group of maidens, 50 in here. And Grapevine has the experience edge. There's no other speed on paper. So she's got the speed. She's going to drop in class. And she's going to get to the outside after drawing towards the inside in both starts. I just... You know, I look to the rest of the field in here, and we have a lot of question marks. I feel like we know we're going to get some speed out of this filly, and with the outside draw, she might be able to sit just a, a little bit more. So, Grapevine in here, the play in race number one at Keeneland. If we can get anything around three to one or so, that seems like a, a pretty fair price. Let's move along to race number two, three. Let's go to race number three for our next play, and it's going to be the number two. That is Euphoric. So we got Maiden Special Weights. They're going to be going six furlongs in race number three. Euphoric debuted on September the 27th at Churchill Downs, and she had a good start. She sat third. She loomed up. She was right on even terms uh, at the top of the lane with uh, Arrival right for the lead, and then she faded. She's got plenty to gain out of that. And this barn is excellent second time out. So let's give a look to Euphoric. Make sure to toss her in some of your early exotics. If she's anything around 6 to 1 or so, I'm going to make a win wager on Euphoric. We move along to race number 4. And Tapwood is going to try the grass. And she is he is bred beautifully for this turf. The dam was a six-time winner, was six for 20 overall, three for 12 on the thir- on the turf with three seconds and four-thirds, and she actually won her first start on the grass. We're talking about Better Lucky, who was a multiple grade one winner on the turf and a multiple grade one winner going one mile on the turf. She won a grade one on this turf course at Keeneland going one mile, so plenty of things to like about Tapwood and the races that uh, he's coming out of are really good. Uh, in particular, the sapling stakes race last time out. He was behind a horse named Pick and Time who came back to win a $90,000 stakes race. So Tapwood trying the grass, coming out of some good races. I think I said she three or four times, mainly because I was focused on the, the damn better lucky. But this two-year-old Colt looks ready to step forward on the green. Tapwood, anything around five to two. And this might be a horse that I would single in an early pick five situation, give you opportunity to spread out in in a couple other legs. You probably won't have a six to five single. It'll probably be more of a two to one ish single. If, uh, if Tapwood gets a little bit of money there, let's go to the fifth and the two tribulation is a horse. uh, I think we should all include in some of the exotics in his debut. He was a step slow from the rail. He recovered. He got up to sixth and he was only about four off. He was in the third flight on the inside. He was saving ground. Then he angled over the two path. He was in with a couple lengths, but he faded. And that was from the rail. Now that was from the rail going six and a half. 
the post position draw isn't going to matter nearly as much going in a mile going a mile and an eighth here so you get the second out improvement and the stretch out factor here the two tribulation will be in all of my exotics in race number five at keeneland on friday we move to the seventh race on friday at keeneland and we're going to talk about a non-two allowance they'll be on the turf course five and a half furlongs the distance here a couple to uh, to look at and to use some of the exotics the two power end his last two starts over at kentucky prove that he belongs in a spot with this kind of competition because he's the type of horse who when you go over to lone star and you win a race like a maiden 20 and a first level allowance you have question marks as to how he's going to stack up with tougher company but when you go over to kentucky and you perform that well in those races he he belongs with this group i think you have to use the two power end in all of your exotics here in race number seven the other two who feel very logical the nine explorer he needed his last start he hadn't raced from june of 2019 to september of 2020 and he ran really really well and as you would expect he showed speed he faded and now he's going to try the turf for the first time i think he's in the mix i think you got to give competitive saint a shot too you can just completely dismiss his race at kentucky where he had some trouble early on and just play him off the previous form and he would be a major contender so i'm 2 9 11 in race number seven at keeneland on friday we move to race number eight this is probably the late exotic single for me with admiral lynch and the real key is him going from inside to outside in here his last start he was a step slow from the rail and then he was behind uh, he got caught behind other horses and in tight on the inside, shuffled, lost a couple lengths, and he never had a shot that day. It was his first start in a few months. He will be a little bit better today, a little bit sharper. He's drawn to the outside. There's not a ton of speed. It, he's he's probably the quickest if he if he wants to go. But with the outside draw, if somebody else you know looks down and thinks there's not a lot of speed and they decide to send hard, Admiral Lynch can sit off of them. And that's what I like about the outside draw there. So you're not going to get rich playing a horse like this to win. But in a late pick four, late pick five situation, this will probably be a horse I single in on. And um, then you know, then you can move. Uh, you can move uh, around in the other few races and and get a little more creative. Try to throw some prices in. Maybe uh, in race number nine where we look to princess grace who actually was scratched from a a race on preakness undercard and she's been really impressive in both of her starts i've been waiting for her to run after that day when she scratched and i think this is a good spot for her there's nobody in here that terrifies you when you just look on basic numbers and figures she's not overmatched she does need to improve a little bit but you're going to get a nice price on her uh, in in that case and Vitez is another one who I'd look at in here too so the three and five are maybe a few outside the box horses to throw into your late exotics here in race number nine in particular the three princess grace so that is your Friday over at Keeneland let's go from Keeneland to Belmont for Friday Race one will be the first play at Belmont Park on Friday, and it's going to be a first level allowance on the turf course. I'm going to the four, Cryogenic. He was wide last time out, going six furlongs on the turf. Two starts back, you can toss the race because it was taken off the grass. They took a shot there, and he's just not nearly as good. Uh, you know, he he hasn't shown anything really in a, on a wet surface. So 
Now you're getting back to the grass. You're getting back to Irad. I'd imagine you're just going to get a better trip. And then you got last time out. And look back at the race on July the 26th at Saratoga. A repeat of that puts him right there. He's a little bit too big of a price. Anything around 4-1 to one or so makes a lot more sense on cryogenic. So if he's that price, let's play him to win. Make sure to throw him in your early pick fives there. We move to the later part of the card at Belmont. So we have three plays on Friday. The next one is going to be in race number six. I'm going to talk about the eight Shiraz in here, who I think seven to two feels about a, a fair price on Shiraz. In, in his last start, he was fourth. He was too deep. He was a couple lengths off the lead, and he was taken back, and then he came on again. I just thought it wasn't a very great ride, and, and Saez jumps aboard today. He was uh, aboard for the last uh, couple of victories for this guy. He knows him well. Shiraz is very well spotted in here. The number eight Shiraz at around seven to two will make a win wager in race number six. Final play for Belmont Park on Friday is going to be in race number eight, and it's going to be the number one, Rock Sugar. They're going to jump on the dirt for the first time. This guy has tried the grass in both of his starts. He's gone a mile and a 16th. In his debut, he was a really good third. In his second start, he showed a little bit more speed that day, and he ended up fading. But both of those races, what I like, they were going long, going a mile and a 16th, and his damn was actually a three-time winner, and all of those wins came on the dirt. She won a first-level allowance going a mile and a 16th at Belmont, and she was stakes-placed. So this is a horse who's been training on the dirt, has plenty of dirt breeding, and has two races going long, which nobody else in this field can say. So from just a pure fitness standpoint, from a talent standpoint, I think there's a lot of things to like about Rock Sugar. 7-2 to two feels like the price we'd want to uh, put a few bucks on Rock Sugar. Three plays for Belmont Park on Friday. Race number one, the number four, Cryogenic, four to one is the value line there. Race number six, the number eight, Shiraz, seven to two, feels fair on that one. And in race number eight, the number one, Rock Sugar, another one that's seven to two or so feels like the fair price on Rock Sugar. We move to Santa Anita for a couple Santa Anita Friday plays. Got to be honest, the Santa Anita cards have been just bad. Uh, I hate to say it because I'm a West Coast player and I've played Santa Anita, Del Mar, back before it was Hollywood. I, I love even, you know, looking up at Golden Gate and their racing's been, the quality's uh, been a little bit better. When I say quality, I mean the field size. And we just get a lot of these small fields with heavy chocks at Santa Anita. So it's been hard to find a ton. You're not finding 8, 10, 12 to one shots there. It just, there just aren't, they just don't exist. <laughs> the, the live horses like that just don't exist. But maybe we could find you a few for Friday that look good uh, and that will, that are worth playing at these prices. In particular, race number three, the number 10, Milaiki. So you've got good precocious breeding here. This is a two-year-old son of Square Eddie. The dam, uh, too much excess. So you've got some in excess blood there. The dam was over two, but she's produced five foals to race. Four of them have won. Two of them have won on the turf and both are stakes winners. They've earned all together 717,000 in earnings with uh, with those five. So you got a solid win early pedigree. You got a horse who has some foundation. You got a with the the training, and you've got a barn who can win early. There are a lot of things that are positive signals for me. Likey the outside draw, eh? I don't love, but 
you it's it'll be built into the price a little bit, right? We don't want to take less than four to one or so. Me likey, I think he'll probably be somewhere around five, eight to one on the morning line. Me likey in race number three. We move to race number five, and the next play is gonna be the one tap water. I think five to two is probably as low as we'd want to go on tap water here. She is a, a Philly who is going to be making her third start off of a long layoff. And this is the first time in her career when she's ever put three starts together. The last time she raced was the only the first time she's really put two starts together ever. And when we saw her on September the 5th, she broke on top. She sat second. She was up to challenge. She was on even terms with She's Our Charm, who is a rival in this spot. And then she just faded. But now she gets the inside draw. She saves all the ground. She might have regressed a little bit in that September race because she raced really, really well on August the 14th, and that was her first start since May of 2019. So she came off a long layoff, raced really well in August, came back in a few weeks, less than a month you know, from August the 14th to September 5th, and she, she might have regressed a bit. She just didn't have a whole lot of punch. She gets the inside draw now, and I, I think she just saves all the ground in here and the way this race on paper looks it's probably going to be she's our charm breaking going for the lead is heather's gray going to be able to keep up with she's our charm if so i think tap water can sit a a nice third behind a lot of this is going to come down to what are the chosen tactics for heather's gray if they decide to try to sit with her she's our charm could sneak away and that puts tap water maybe in second Um, As long as she's able to relax and save ground from the rail, which I figure she does, she should be very, very fit and ready for the absolute best race of her career. Tap water in race number five. The number one will use it around five to two. And then we move to race number eight on Friday. And going to be maiden special weights here these are calbreds phillies and mares three-year-olds and up going a mile on the turf course i like the one keep dancing who's going to try the turf for the first time this dam was a nine-time winner on the turf nine for 18 she has produced five foals so far to race four of them have been winners three of them are multiple winners three of them are turf winners there's not a ton of speed in this race and keep dancing has actually shown a little bit of tactical speed even sprinting and there have been some nice quick workouts. I think this filly has a little bit of that positional speed. You get the inside draw. I'm very capable. Jose Valdivia Jr. in particular on the grass. I think you can kind of excuse the actual finish of the last race for her. She was facing open company last time out. And she you could say she she was hard to load. And so, you know, an easy toss there. Keep dancing. Should improve a ton. The number one, keep dancing. Anything around, I think over six to one feels good to me. And she's 15 to one on the morning line. The number eight is another one I would use in all of your exotics in here. Rocky Causeway with the blinkers on. She probably just gets the lead because there's just no other speed in here. Somebody may end up going and then she could just track. But there is just nobody that's going to get out of here and, and gun it. Maybe the two catch up with Maldonado stretching out and a couple of these horses stretching out. Sure. We could see them going, but Rocky Causeway probably has the most natural speed in this field. And that's why I think keep dancing. If they want to get a little aggressive just to get a good spot, 
they have the the nice position and the nice draw to do so. It's one eight, and then the six Rose's Crystal, who had some trouble last time out, who's really had legitimate trouble in three consecutive starts where she's due for a trip, and I would include her in some of your late exotics here. So it'd be one eight six for me in race number eight at Santa Anita. So three races that I'll be looking at at Santa Anita for Friday. Race number three, the number 10, Mead Likey. Anything around four to one makes sense. In the fifth race, the number one, Tap Water. Anything over five to two makes sense there. And in the eighth race, the number one, Keep Dancing. Around six to one or so, make sure to include in the exotics with the eight and the six. That is Friday racing. Before we talk Saturday racing, we have to mention our friends over at Sarah Candles. Sarah Candle Company, that's C-E-R-A candles.com is the website. Their goal to create that candle, natural, clean burning, high quality that everyone can enjoy. The key for them, the all natural soy wax. None of those toxins that are found in paraffin wax. So no toxins, no pollutants, no carcinogens. You've got the best ingredients, quality pack packaging, affordable prices. These are longer burning because of that soy wax. They're going to burn up to 50% longer and they're going to be better for you. They're actually healthier for you. This is a small company made uh, local, locally sourced, made in micro batches. They are hand poured. And when you use the promo code GINO, get 10% off your purchase. Another great holiday gift for someone here. Everybody loves a candle. You can get different scents for different friends, different members of your family, and you're going to save a few bucks when you use that promo code G-I-N-O. Gets you 10% off of your purchase. 25 different scents available, three different sizes. SarahCandles.com. Let's take a run through the Saturday card over at Keelan. Get those past performances out for October the 17th. So in race number five, just a short field to kick things off, uh, race number one, excuse me, on, on Saturday, it's a short field to kick things off, 25 claimers. I'm going to the number five, bada bada swing, bada 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 swing. I'm, I'm not a fan of just one race in the last 11 months, just one work since his last race, but this guy hooks a field with no other speed on paper, and I just don't really love anybody else in here. He's drawn well. He's proven at Keeneland. He's got a little back class to him. Batter, batter, swing. The number five is the play at anything around five to two in race number one at Keeneland. In race number two, I'm looking at the two spiteful charge. It's easy to excuse her last. It was on the grass. She tried it, didn't like it. She's going to drop to a career low spot today. She's shown tactical speed, so she shouldn't be too far out of it in here. And she ran better than anyone else in this field against Maiden Special Weights on the dirt. Look back at her race against um, on August the 22nd at Ellis Park against Maiden Specials that day in a race that's come back live so far. She was fourth. She wasn't bad. She was in the mix early. She made a, small, a middle move, and she faded. This is a great spot for Spiteful Charge, the number two in race number two, five to two. Is, uh, is about as low as we would go on her. In the third race, nothing cute outside the box here. I just think Kiffle is the early single in exotics. Uh, this looks like a horse who's very, very well spotted, is coming out of some of the better races. She's going to be tough to catch and tough to beat. That is the number five Kiffle. The fourth race feels like a little more of a spread out race. You've got the nine, who I would start with. This is a class dropper who finds a nice spot, and, and all he has to do is take to the dirt. He's right there with this group based on, you know, just experience facing better. The 
five Sermont who comes out of a you know a strong race at Ellis. I would give a look to the seven ultimate irony, who's at least shown a little bit of ability at Churchill Downs against Maiden 30s. Then you got the one Mechanicville from the inside who uh, just took a shot against better in the debut going long on the grass now takes the big drop down in class you've got the four saint verain who at least we got a good effort from this guy last time out but it was sprinting going five and a half on the dirt over at indy against maiden 16s and this is a whole different ball game here going longer so this is a race just filled with question marks to me. That's why it screams a race that I'm going to have to go a little deep in some of the exotics if I want. I would look to you know, 9, 5, 7, 1, 4 in that order. In the fifth race, pretty straightforward. I, I thought the 5, I or the, excuse me, the, the 7, I hear you, had really no excuses last time out because I played her and I liked her a lot in this spot. She was a close-up third she was in the two path she was just off and then she was in between horses she she was second early and then she took back to sit third and then she angled around three wide and she just had nothing and that was going a mile and an eighth she makes the slight cut back to a mile and a 16th in here and she's better than that she, she just is better than she showed last time out if she gets back to what she showed on september the 4th that's good enough to win this race. The blinkers come on Siamese, making her second start in the U.S. She saved ground on the inside in uh, the, her U.S. debut. She was fifth, uh, you know, about nine lengths off or so. And she moved up into contention. She was only about two lengths off with a big four-wide bid. She was a little flat late. She lost the battle for third. She's going to put the blinkers on to get her a little focused. She took a lot of money in that September 19th race. And it was her first start in a few months, first start U.S., first start for the new barn. She has a lot of reason to get better in her next start. And then Great Island feels very logical for Chad Brown, top connections, and eh, she just hasn't done anything wrong, and she might be just better than this field in here. Seven six twelve for me in race number five in those exotics. Let's move to race number six at Keeneland. We're going to look at the uh, 50 allowance here. This is a starter allowance. And the one cool Bobby going to be very tough the rail is what concerns me and and doesn't make cool bobby just some standout single the five mr k lightly raced three-year-old who debuted at churchill going made in 75 and split a field of 11 was okay in a race that was actually a little bit better than it would just look at first glance on paper that was going a mile too. july the 10th wins breaks the maiden right here over this track Last time out for Mr. K, it was a good start. It was right with the leaders, took back, sat fourth, maybe three or four lengths off, and then it was in the fourth or fifth spot. Came, you know, with a fine, nice five deep move and ended up finishing third at this level. Now you're going to go second off the short break. Lightly raced animal with some upside in here. Puts two starts together, comes back to Keeneland. Mr. K. K, the number five. I'm going to be using this guy in all of the exotics. If he's around six to one or so, I will make a win wager on him. But you got to have to use Cool Bobby along with him in the exotics. So um, five at six to one, we'll we'll play to win, but we'll use along with the one Cool Bobby in the exotics. Another nice horse to throw into your late exotics in race number seven is the number seven, Bel Fior. Bel Fior debuted 
on September the 17th at Churchill Downs, and she broke really well. She was right with the leaders, and then she drops back quickly. She was seventh. She was outside. She was about five, six lengths off, but she really got going late. She was up for third. She's come out of that race with a very nice work, and she gets a little more distance in here. She debuted at six and a half, and that is not an easy distance in which to debut. Belle Fiore. The number seven, make sure to throw her in your late pick fives, late pick fours on Saturday at Keeneland. The number seven in race, number seven, Bell Fior. Six to one or so feels like the, the value line here. In race number eight, this is, you know, it's a non-three allowance that's basically a stakes race. These are older turf horses going a mile and an eighth. You have many in here that have been in stakes races recently and they found those foes just a little too tough and they're dropping in here. You have Ritzy AP who's been in stakes in the last few. Don't blame Rocket in stakes in the last couple. You have Midnight Tea Time who is coming out of a stakes and has been in stakes races up and down the page. You have Counter Offer dropping out of a stakes. You've got Corelli coming out of back-to-back grade one stakes races. Net Gain dropping out of stakes. Hierarchy dropping out of stakes races. Temple dropping out of stakes. Appreciato was in graded stakes prior to the return race last time out so i mean this is a stakes quality field here i'm gonna lean to the seven corelli because it just feels like he's coming out of good races and let's be fair those grade ones and the grade one united nations wasn't really a grade one that was more like a grade two grade three but he's still coming out of some of the better races and i think you can make a legitimate excuse for a couple starts on his page because of the soft turf he just does not seem like he's been a fan of soft turf and let's go through his last three starts so august the 29th Saratoga soft turf let's put a line right through it he's behind channel maker who actually was cruising on the front end then channel maker came back to win again He runs well in the United Nations. He runs third in June, on June the 4th. That was his first start since September of 2019. It was his first start in the U.S. And he was just kind of a little slow and he picked things up late. He was only beaten three lengths. It was a race he absolutely needed. If he fires something close to that July race at Monmouth, they're all running for second. And at a price of seven to two or so i'm i'm willing to take that that chance i'm willing to take that swing on the number seven corelli in race number eight we move to race number nine and this is the gray two lexus raven run seven furlongs for three-year-old fillies i'm a big fan of four graces she's a nice filly she got hooked into a speed battle last time out she held really well for second and she she was able to win the you know the battle of the speeds but she did not win the race when uh, finishing as the runner up the big question with her in this spot as is in you know every race but you know when you look at them and you see a couple of horses that you know want to go and be on the lead how is this race going to shape up venetian harbor is going to want to go if you've followed along with this story at all one of the owners of this horse did not like the way Joel rode her in his in the last start. He wanted to send. So I would imagine that the game plan today is going to be send because that was the plan last time. Maybe it's different because they were in a race with uh, Gamine and they said, you know, wanted to, wanted to take it to Gamine early. Maybe in this spot, you do let four graces go and sit just off. I don't know. 
as a fan of Four Graces, I'm a little bit worried that she's drawn to the inside instead of towards the outside. She shows up, she'll let throw it down with you, and she can fight you off and win and then keep going. I just... I, I don't really know who would get the most beneficial trip and it, it would lead me to Secret Keeper. So I, I would slightly make Secret Keeper my top selection. But to me, this is a race where it would be 2, 10, 5, 6, and 8. Depending on how you want to go, I would absolutely have 2, 5, and 10 as your top tier horses in here. Question marks about Venetian Harbor, but she might just be better than this group. And then you have Secret Keeper who she's raced three times. She won her first two. She tried grade three company last time out, and it was just a small field, but the horse she hooked, Harvest Moon, won a grade two next out, the grade two Zenyatta, and that was Harvest Moon's fourth win in a row. And Secret Keeper, she tried that day. She broke on top. She opened up a length. She got some outside pressure. She tried to kick on. But she wasn't in the best spot. She had to track from the inside, then she had to battle back. She had to put that pace rival away, and then she tried to separate from Harvest Moon. But I think she was worn a little down late. It was a nice second for Secret Keeper with the outside draw. She could be the one that falls into a great spot here. I would put her slightly on top. If she's anything 6-1 to one or over, that feels fair. The 2-4 Graces... And the five Venetian Harbor, I'd have a tough time leaving them out of the exotics. The six and the eight, if you want to go a little bit deeper, I think Reagan's Edge has some ability. I would maybe like her a tad more at six and a half uh, than than seven. But she she's another one who might be able to fall into it. And then Fair Maiden, who was good in her dirt debut last time out, it's tough to completely just dismiss her in this spot. So. 2, 10, 5 on that top tier, slightly leaning 10, 6 and 8 if you're going to go a little bit deeper. And then just look super logical in race number 10, quarterback Dak looks like the one to me on the drop. And then if you want to go deeper, it's 10, 8, 9. So nothing too crazy in some of the late exotics there at Keeneland for uh, for Saturday in the first race. Bad about a swing, 5 to 2 is as far as uh, we'd want to go there. The second race, the 2, spiteful charge. In the third race, the, the 5 is just a single. That's not a horse to play, but an early exotic single as a chalk single. Fourth race, it would be 9 with uh, 1, 4, 5, and 7. Fifth race, we'd be using the five, uh, the 7, I Hear You, with the 6, Siamese, the 12, Great Island. The sixth race, the 5, Mr. K, at around 6 to 1. Make sure to include with the number 1, Cool Bobby, in the seventh, it's the seven Del Fiore at around six to one. In the eighth, it's Corelli at around seven to two. In the ninth, four Grace's Secret Keeper, Venetian Harbor, that top tier. And then six and eight, you want to go deeper. And in the tenth race, the two quarterback Dak is who we'd start with. Unfortunate with the the Dak recent news, right? And then ten, eight, nine would be the the next horses that I'd be including over at Keeneland on Saturday. Three plays over at Belmont on Saturday, and I, I really like two of them quite a bit. And I haven't liked a whole lot over at New York uh, over the last couple weeks, but in race number one, I thought the sixth great Dansky, the great Dansky looks like a single here. He's going to sit a, a really nice trip. Rejected again's got some inside speed. Ryan's cat's got some pace there. Leave you with the smile's got some speed. Great Dansky's going to sit. He took a shot against Tougher going long on the grass last time now you're back to a dirt sprint this is bread and butter for him dropping back after trying tougher off the claim i always like that too we go to race number seven 
races seven and nine will be the uh, the next two plays. So in race number seven, it's going to be the number nine actually, and it's going to be uh, in race nine afterwards. But in race number seven, the nine Bernardino. Okay, he's raced three times, and really we cannot knock what he's done in his first two starts because both of them were followed by long layoffs, and we really don't know who he is. He actually faced some tough horses in, in those starts, too. Argonne, who won the next two starts. Battle of Memphis was the next out winner. You got the Sheik of Araby, who was the next out winner from his career debut race. So it's really tough to to get a gauge or a feel for who he is out of those races. But his last start, he changes barns, and he got stuck inside. He was in a bad spot. He got shuffled. He lost a few lengths. He angled inside. He got up for a really nice second. He had not raced from January of 2019 to September of 2020. He really needed that start. He should be set up for a lot better today. Didn't rush back, so there's plenty of time. No bounce factor, hopefully, with the, the, a lot of time to recover. You have to use Bernardino in all exotics. If he's anything around 7-2, to two, let's make a win wager on him. And then in race number 9, it's the 5, Exantique, who was at Kentucky last time out, and she drew the rail. And she had a slow start. It was towards the rear. She was about five lengths off on the inside. And she just had tons of traffic. Nowhere to go. Shuffled. Waiting. Loaded with run. Blocked. Absolutely brutal trip. Just nowhere to go. Never had room. She likes this turf course. She showed she could win in a turf sprint. Two starts back going five and a half. I, the cutback to six feels great to her. She was just so much farther back than she has to be. And I would expect her to, to be sitting a lot closer, even cutting back from a mile here. She just has more tactical speed than that. X-Antique, the number five, anything around five to two, we will be playing her. So the three plays for Belmont on Saturday in the first, the number six, the great Dansky looks like that exotics early single in the seventh. It's the number nine Bernardino at around seven to two. And in the ninth, the number five Exantique at around five to two. We move from Belmont to Santa Anita for Saturday. Three plays over at Santa Anita. First one's going to come in race number two with the two big story. Who's going to stretch out and try the grass. He debuted going six furlongs on the dirt at Del Mar. He was five wide early. He was mid-pack, maybe about three or four lengths off. He kept towards the outside, and he was chasing lone speed. It was an eight-to-five winner. He just misses second that day. Now he takes the blinkers off, stretches out, tries to glat the grass. Plenty of turf breeding in the pedigree. Son of Mr. Big with some Dynaformer on the top side. You got some Heat Seeker there on the dam side. Big story Make sure to use him in all of your exotics. He might be an early exotics single for me. We move to the third race, and we got Solitaire, who's just really consistent. I have no knocks on this filly who stepped up and tried first-level allowance company on the synthetic at Golden Gate going long, but she was a two-back winner against uh, in, a, in a similar spot to this at Del Mar going a mile on the turf. So Solitaire in a short field, if she's around five to two or so, that would offer some value in race number three. And then we move to race number nine. It is the Autumn Mist. Let's go to the one mind out. So she debuts going five furlongs. She wins. 
she stretches out in the surfer girl. She's right behind Warren Showtime and Croc of Oak, who are in this field. Then she goes to the bench for a while. She comes back. She finishes second. A couple months off. Comes back. Finishes second again. A couple more months off. She finishes second at Del Mar by a nose in a spot that would be pretty comparable to this. And then she cuts back to a, a turf sprint. She she runs really well last time out. She was squeezed back at the start. She got going late. It was a better than looks fourth. Now she's going to go third off the bench. First time she's ever putting three together. She's going to stretch back out. I think mind out is going to run a big one, saving the ground from the inside. Five to one feels fair on mind out. So three plays at Santa Anita for Saturday the first race, the number two big story is that early exotic single. The third race, the number two solitaire, anything around five to two. And in the ninth race, the number one mind out, anything around five to one. So big weekend racing, you know, there's going to be big weekend racing contests for stable duel. What is stable duel? Daily horse racing contest. What do I mean by that? What you do is you enter a contest. So for example, on Friday this week in, in Stable Duel, there are contests at Keeneland and Santa Anita. So let's say you enter you enter in the a $10 entry. It only costs you $10 to get in one of the Keeneland contests. You enter in and you are going to have to make a lineup of 10 horses running throughout the Keeneland card on Friday. And you have to pick them based on salary cap. So horses are assigned a value based on what their morning line is which means you can't just pick the heavy favorite in every race. You pick one or two favorites. In other races, you're going to have to pick a couple long shots, and you basically have to pick about a five or six to one shot um, you know, average in each race all the way through. So you know, you you want to look for different horses who are going to get bet down. That'll give you an advantage, and we are really, really big on these stable dual contests because they give you the opportunity to play for 10, 20, 50 bucks and win hundreds and thousands of dollars like anything you're playing against other competitors and you're playing against other people who can't stack a deck, they can't stack a lineup, they can't outbid you or outbuy you in a pick four or pick five sequence because they have to build their lineup based on the salary cap too. They can't do things that you can't do. It's a really good gauge of, hey, if, who's got a really good feel for the card today? And if you feel like Santa Anita, Keeneland are your bread and butter racetracks, you will love the lineup this weekend. Here's what we got. New formats too. They have a double up format in which the top 40% get double the money. So all you have to do is finish in the top 40% of the players in the contest. You double up your money, whatever the entry fee was. And they're going to have one of those contests on Sunday. On Friday, Keeneland, $10 entry contest. Over six hundred with six hundred dollars in prizes. There's also a fifty dollar top ten that will pay out in fifteen hundred dollar in prizes to the top ten finishers. There, two different options at Santa Anita: a five dollar entry for two hundred fifty dollars in prizes. A twenty five dollar entry pays out to the top ten with seven hundred fifty in prizes. Saturday, Keeneland. $10 entry, 600 prizes, and then the $25 entry is the big one, $5,000 in prizes. You just heard all of the thoughts on the Saturday Keeneland card, so you can go through and get my thoughts on the whole card, race by race, who would be some of the horses to, to build your lineup with. You got the same for, for Friday with some Keeneland thoughts, also some Santa Anita Friday thoughts. Santa Anita Saturday, they have a $5 entry 
for $250 prizes. They have a $25 entry, top 10 with $1,000. And then on Sunday, two different options at Keeneland, the $10 entry and the $25 top 10. And then Santa Anita has one of those double ups where you just have to finish in the top 40%. That's on Sunday, Friday, Saturday. Sunday contest for Stable Duel at Santa Anita at Keeneland. The big one, if you're only going to play in one, make sure that one is the $25 entry, $5,000 prize contest at Keeneland on Saturday. If you need any help, if you have any questions about Stable Duel, what is it, um, please let me know. uh, I'd love to help you out and answer any questions that you might have. If you have any questions about SummerSlam 1993, you're going to have them answered in just a moment because it's an episode of the old wrestling rewatch andrew champagne darren zocali they join me we talk about summerslam 1993 everything happened in the world wrestling federation right in the middle there's a slight technical difficulty which ends up being really funny because andrew is cutting out because his internet wasn't that great and he goes on this rant and doesn't realize that we stopped talking darren and i are laughing so there's a lot of fun right in the middle where we have a, a few minutes of laughter um that sort of right smack in the middle of our 1993 SummerSlam review kick back and enjoy old wrestling fans you'll love the banter here for SummerSlam 1993. We are back after a short little uh, little recess. We, we play, talked Preakness one week, and then I had to take a week off to watch a, a Laker-Dodger doubleheader one night. But we're back to talk some old wrestling. It's the old wrestling rewatch. Andrew Champagne, Darren Zocali, back to join me on That's What G Said. And uh, this was Darren's choice, and we're going to talk WWF SummerSlam 1993 and, and it was I mean we can we can we don't even need to sugarcoat it the show is not good it is bad and there's a lot of bad and then some funny bad things to discuss but but what the what makes this show interesting and a lot of times the bad shows are even more fun to discuss is the time period, Darren? We're at this time in '93 now, with all these massive changes. Vince is in the middle of the steroid trial. No more Hulk Hogan. This is a pay per view where he's supposed. To, the main event of this show earlier in the year was supposed to be Bret Hart versus Hulk Hogan, with Bret winning the title and beating Hulk Hogan. Lex Luger is all of a sudden out of nowhere the new babyface. Razor Ramon is now turning babyface. Jerry Lawler is in the mix. Bobby the Brain and Mean Gene, this is their last SummerSlam. They're going to be leaving in early 94, and this is the last TV appearance for Ted DiBiase as a wrestler before he transitions more to uh, some commentary and then with the uh, the million-dollar uh, corporation. So, I mean, DZ, there's just a ton going on at this time. I mean, there there are shows in WWE that are so bad that they're good. This is not one of those shows. <laughs> no. <laughs> this, show, this show is in my opinion, one of the worst pay-per-views that WWE has ever had. Yeah. Uh, you, the the in-ring wrestling is poor. Uh, even the, the big-name matches are not what you would expect them to be. Nope. Uh, we'll talk about that. Um, you have Bret Hart in some kind of a convoluted storyline in the middle of the card where he's involved with Doink the Clown and Jerry Lawler. And this is you know, just about four months after he was, you know, WWE champion. Uh, and and you, like you said, was supposed to be headlining this show uh, with Hulk Hogan. Uh, and then, of course, you get the ending of this pay-per-view 
oh, where I... it was as if Lex Luger won the presidential election and conceivably won nothing. Uh, and then it even gets worse from there with the Lex Express video roll package Unbelievable. after that, followed by the confrontation of the poor man's Brock Lesnar, Ludwig Borga, and Lex Luger to set up their feud that never really culminates into anything. I mean, this is just from bad to worse, from start to finish, but there was a lot, a lot of things going on behind the scenes in WWE politically that make 1993 a very interesting year to talk about, despite the fact that the actual wrestling and storylines are probably some of the worst in the company's history. You know, there actually are a couple of isolated, good to very good matches on this show. My biggest problem was, and I mentioned this to Gino and Darren, maybe I texted you too, this was a show that you could have conceivably fit into a tight hour and 30 minutes. Yeah. Except it's two hours Mm -hmm. and 47 minutes. So much filler. Yeah. And that's not something that we were accustomed to with WWF pay-per-views because for everything bad that WWF ever put out there, everything that flopped from a creative standpoint, in some instances where the matches weren't that good, whatever, their television production was still always top-notch. Here, you get what would be a decent hour and 30-minute show, except it goes almost double that. And this takes me back to a couple of months ago when we recapped WCW Halloween Havoc 1998, as I hear Darren shuddering over there in, in Staten Island from the memories of that one, because this was in large part a lot of the same stuff. A lot of things that didn't need to be on pay-per-view, a lot of segments that didn't need to get booked, some things that were just unnecessarily long. And while there were a couple of really cool matches, a couple of really cool moments, on the whole, it's a stinker. Every single thing about this show, and and the one, I'll give this show one like a positive, and there'll be some positives throughout it. One of the positives I'll give it from the beginning. They made the main event match feel like a big deal. They very much did with everything going on with the Yoko entourage, the announcers, the package at the beginning, the way that Vincent and Bobby are talking Lex all night and pushing him and the way they're pushing the Lex Express, all that, right? They make it feel like a big deal and then they just don't go through. I mean, there's nothing about this when you rewatch it. If you've never watched it again, there's no way in hell you think Lex Luger is not winning the title. At this show, I mean, there's just no way. Everything they're doing, the shots he takes at Hulk Hogan and like up and like uplifts Lex Luger, and, and you know there are little things I'll point out throughout the show. And I mean, we get it started right away. It's a Mean Gene voiceover for the intro, and then we see the Lex Express and Lex Luger meeting hundreds of thousands of Americans now at the Palace of Auburn Hills. And then right away we get Vince. He welcomes us in, screaming, "The Lex Express has stopped in suburban Detroit." The Lex Express has stopped in Auburn Hills. The Lex Express has stopped at the palace. The Lex Express has stopped at SummerSlam. And he's was that Vince McMahon (laughs) or Rita Repulsa from the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers show? A little bit of both. Maybe some Luna in the mix, too. Um, He's alongside Bobby the Brain. 
And they all immediately right get into the main event They run down the card, three titles on the line Jerry says actually four Because the king of the ring is on the line With Brett the Hitman Hart versus Jerry the King Lawler And uh, we get into our first match right away It's the Million Dollar Man versus Razor Ramon And we could tell what they were doing with this match Darren, this isn't This match goes seven minutes And it and it This match offends me probably one of the least of any matches on the show Because you know what it is This is to get Razor over as a babyface You put him in against a guy who's a long time heel And you know he's going to get booed So that means you know Razor will get the, the cheers in here Because you're trying to turn him anyways And this is Teddy Biasi's last Match on TV They had a uh, last like pay-per-view match They had the little feud going with um, He and IRS with Razor and the 123 kid And we see IRS beat the 123 kid later uh, In the show So you know this isn't great it's not awful. These are two pros. We get to see things that we expect. It's just slow. And you could see DBS, he just didn't have a whole lot left. Yeah, he's near the end of his career. One thing that, um, that, that kind of struck me, I forgot how brief Razor was, was actually a heel for. I mean, looking yeah. back on it, it, it felt like longer. Yep. Um, you know, you think about like the stuff that he did with Flair and and Macho Man at the end of the year. Not even then, really a full year. Yeah, exactly. And then and then you know he had the big rivalry with Brett uh, going into the Royal Rumble match, uh, and and then you know through uh, through King WrestleMania. Yeah, yeah. So it, it felt like he was a heel for a lot longer mm-hmm. than he was. Um, and I didn't realize until I until I saw this that they had already begun to. Turn him face. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, they, you know, the whole one, two, three kid thing was going on. Um, they they work to, uh, you know, to get him over as a baby face. You know, you get the the razor's edge, uh, you know, formerly known as the diamond death drop when he was the diamond stud in WCW. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, th- there's nothing offensive about this match. Two pros, like you said, doing the necessary work to get get over the, the new baby face in the company. Uh, and obviously... You know, unbeknownst to us at this point in time, Razor has some monstrous things on the horizon. Uh, obviously, you know, the big rivalry that he's going to have with Sean, uh, all of his work that he's going to do as an Intercontinental Champion, and of course, eventually becoming, you know, the the lead member, one of the lead members of the NWO. So uh, this is one of those times that Razor's career kind of takes a different path, goes from heel to babyface, and sets us up for the future Razor Ramon. But match-wise... You know, it's fine. It does what it's supposed to do and gets the show off on a relatively good foot. But unfortunately, things go south rather quickly. (laughs) One thing I will say, at least for the early part of this show, this crowd was hot. Very. Razor's music hits and the crowd roars, which once again brings to mind a question that I ask every time we review a WWF pay-per-view from this time period. You're telling me they couldn't have at least tried something with Razor at the top of the card? Come on. He never really had another can did he have another main event like really like a title match? Or like a feud know. on pay-per-view again where he had a title match? Maybe one against Diesel at like an in your house or something? I mean, I don't I I, I can't even recall ever him get he was in the IC level for so long and honestly Andrew that was the point that he, the reason why he left you know, you hear him in all the documentaries and the behind-the-scenes stuff when he talks about it. He went to Vince and he said, hey, what can I do to improve my status here? I'd like to be able to be at least in the main event picture, you know, get some shots at the title, a title run. Can I do anything? What can I do? And Vince said, there's nothing you can do. You and know, we, 
Yeah, and instead of that, we got heel Yokozuna on top for nine months. I know. You're telling me? And, and there's one thing that I, we see later in the show too It's funny like when Macho Man gets announced to come out To the uh, to introduce Lex Luger It's funny it's like You think about how just a Macho Man Yokozuna Would have felt even better in that you know, I guess the main event there The crowd was still behind Randy And that would have even been fine But everything they just did didn't, didn't really work We'll get farther yeah. there But um, yeah I mean yeah. Andrew go ahead No just uh, there's not a whole lot to say about this match It's a seven minute opener for what it is, it's fine. It's DiBiase's last WWF match as an in-ring competitor. There are varying stories as to why he left, and we haven't really gotten the full story as far as what went down because his back at this point was not great. It wasn't wrecked, but it wasn't great. He says that he left WWF to work on issues pertaining to his marriage because mm-hmm. DiBiase would wind up being a born-again Christian a couple of years later down the line. He was not there at that point, and there was a lot going on. However, we don't necessarily know if that's true because a couple months after that, he turns up in All Japan Pro Wrestling to go work tag matches with Stan Hansen. So how much truth we can say to any of that is you know, speculative at best. But he would wind up going to All Japan. He had the run with Hansen. And that's where his back got wrecked to where he couldn't work as an in-ring competitor anymore. This match was fine. DiBiase does the honorable thing, which everyone obviously expected him to do as a second-generation guy. He puts Razor over on his way out the door. There's some bad stuff on this show. This match isn't one of them. It's just, it is what it is. Yep. And and there's a couple things uh, throughout that I thought were funny. Um, At one point, Bobby says uh, that Ted offered Razor a job as a domestic. And he should have taken it And he describes being a domestic as You know they hand you the toilet brush And uh, and the dust mop and you just gotta make sure Everything in, is right in the house it, it, it was just so nonchalant and funny The way he was describing it um, And uh, he says afterwards Maybe Razor can have a cerveza And one two three kid can have some Ovaltine And they can compare in the evening Hey I loved me some Ovaltine I loved getting the powder and the spoon Mixing that up I, I was a big Ovaltine guy So uh, hey I just wanted to give Ovaltine A little shout out there uh, I bet your check is in the mail It's gotta be It's gotta be 12 cents coming to me um, More and, Ovaltine please yeah, um, Razor at the at the end Deeb's Debiase uh, undoes the, uh, the turnbuckle He exposes it And then Razor has uh, Razor actually is able to turn it around and he goes in, hits him into the exposed turnbuckle, and then Razor hits the Razor's Edge for the W. Uh, seven minutes and thirty seconds or so. We get to Todd Pettengill. He's talking with Mrs. Steiner and the Steiner's sister, um, both of which are just awful on camera. <laughs> but uh, Todd always gets into these really funny interviews with people where he he's just asking them questions that you know it's like. What do you think about that Frankensteiner, huh? You know, it's like, she's like, what is she going to say? She's got nothing to, whatever you say, Todd, you know, that's just the response all the time. That's always how it was with this guy. Um, he actually gets interrupted by, quickly by Jim Cornette, who says, Michigan's favorite sons are about to go down to the tag team who is better late at night than David Letterman, the Heavenly Bodies. Then um, Tom Pritchard grabs the mic, calls Cornette the greatest wrestling manager in the world. And again, this... You get the Steiner brothers versus the Heavenly Bodies for the tag team titles. This isn't 
Anything bad, it's fine The bodies attack the Steiners from behind Before they can get the, the jackets off Double team to Rick Steiner Heels get the advantage early Rick gets back in the ring Steiners with the double team The ref is just letting everyone in there He is just atrocious throughout this match Just awful officiating throughout Not doing a thing Then the heels roll out Cornette gets furious Vince says they're wearing the colors From the University of Michigan And Bobby says well, uh, that's exciting as far as I'm concerned University of Michigan, anyone can graduate from that school uh, And then Bobby, this was a weird moment, Darren I, And I tried to look this up He gives out their address I'm not sure <laughs> if it was like an inside joke at the time You know, I looked this, this up just to see It's a body tattoo place It's been a nail salon in that location This was a, a weird moment, but um, DZ, not a, not a bad match in any sense of the word These guys could all work, they could all go yeah, I mean, at this time, you know, you have Scott Steiner before he's, you know, Big Papa Pump Scott Steiner. So he's still kind of doing some of that high-flying stuff that he did. Uh, I always enjoyed them in the ring. Uh, I, I thought that they had good chemistry, the Steiner brothers. I, I always liked their move set. Uh, Scott Steiner's tilt-to-whirl slam was one of my favorite moves uh, at, at that time because he did it with such ease, and, and, it, and it's not an easy move to do. Um, this match, you know, I don't really remember the buildup. Leading up to this, now, I know that Smoky Mountain at this time, well, a, a little backstory. So the Heavenly Bodies were a, a tag team that came from Smoky Mountain Wrestling, uh, managed by Jim Cornette. They were originally uh, Dr. Tom Pritchard and, uh, and Sweet Stan Lane. Uh, beautiful Bobby Eaton came into the fold. They kind of had like a three-man demolition thing for a while. Uh, Sweet Stan Lane ended up leaving the group. Then he ended up getting the gigolo Jimmy Del Rey in there as well. And there was some cross-promotional stuff going on that allowed the Heavenly Bodies to uh, to wrestle in originally in WCW uh, and then WWE. They did some stuff with the Rock and Roll Express. There was a lot of cool things going on at that, at that time with this. But I don't really remember the buildup for this particular match. Um, that being said, at this point in my life, I was 10 years old. I absolutely hated Jim Cornette. The guy just did not too, yeah. shut up. And everything was loud and yelling and with that stupid tennis racket. And, and, you know, of course, at that time, being just 10, you know, you don't really know Jim Cornette in terms of what he's actually done in wrestling. You just think he's a loudmouth, annoying manager. Uh, so I could not stand him at all, which was him doing a good job as, a, as obviously a heel manager. But, uh, yeah, th- this match is fine. Um, you know, I-, I was happy that they could have botched the ending by having the wrong guy pin. They actually almost did, but they had Rick go down for the cover uh, after the uh, after the Frankensteiner. It was kind of weird because Scott hits the move and then Rick gets the pin. He's not really involved in the move. But, I mean, aside from that, the match is fine. It's not sensational. It's not bad. And it, at the time, you're watching the first two matches – uh, and you're saying, all right, first match was okay. This Not match, bad. Yeah, yeah, we're off to a pretty decent start, you know. Um, and you, with the match that's coming up after that, you know, you would think you're off to a really good start. But, uh, Andrew, I mean, there was a lot of cool stuff going on with, with Smoky Mountain at the time. But I, to be honest with you, I don't really remember this rivalry looking back on it. I don't remember it much either. I do know that the very next year, the Heavenly Bodies would have the match that a lot of people remember them for. They had a match in Smoky Mountain Wrestling with the Thrill Seekers, a team of two young upstarts from Canada named Chris Jericho and Lance Storm. Mm -hmm. The story behind that match is hysterical. Jericho's diving into a pool, trying to practice a shooting star press, 
and he breaks arm. The uh, heavenly bodies and the thrill seekers somehow nobody has any idea how this happened. They still managed to work a four star match together. That's on YouTube for anybody that wants to look. Chris Jericho bleeds a lot in that match. That's the match that would wind up getting him, quote unquote, discovered by some of the bigger groups in Japan. He was working for some places in Japan, but this was something that he prided himself on for a long, long time. The full story is in his first book, which is a tremendous read. This match was pretty darn good. I enjoyed it. The Heavenly Bodies could work. Rick and Scott Steiner from the University of Michigan. And whenever the crowd starts barking, you know it's a good match. And this was pretty cool. Anytime Scott gets the Frankensteiner on somebody, it's a cool visual because, you know, that's the kind of move where either guy can break his neck if you're not careful. <laughs> but this, this was a pretty good match. And at yeah. this point, we're 20, 25 minutes into the pay-per-view. We get two okay matches. We get a comically bad interview from Todd Pettengill and the Steiners, which, by the way, has a pretty cool little tidbit in that uh, the sister of the Steiner brothers calls Rick Rob, Rob because his real Rob name. is actually his real yeah. name. So funny little slip of the tongue there. But you knew they weren't actresses, no, right? That's, because that's, the way, because yeah. you know, it's like if they were, they were awful. And that's what yeah. I was thinking right away. They're just nothing, no response whatsoever. Um, yeah. Now their crowd was into this match, and that yeah. really helped. Specifically, they got it going which as a michigan fan i enjoyed thoroughly and you get the hometown boys winning a decent tag match nothing objectionable here this is fine this is above average we're off to a decent start so far so good yeah um there are a couple things that uh we wanted to mention bobby was um you know, at one point, Jimmy Gigolo, Jimmy Del Rey, does a little hip shake thrust, and Bobby keeps mentioning Smoky Mountain. So as uh, Dan- Darren mentioned, the obvious relationship here, which Jim Cornette runs, and Bobby was given the edge on points to the bodies. He said it was one twelve, uh, one thousand one hundred twelve to nine. At this point, it's his own point <laughs> point system that he, he, he and um, uh, you know, we got the uh, the normal moves that you get from the Steiners at the end: uh, double underhook suplex, Rick with a bulldog off the top, houses a fire here. Cornette tosses in the tennis racket. Jimmy hits Rick in the back, but he kicks out. Then Jimmy misses a moonsault, and he uh, he nails Tom. And Scott Steiner hits the Frankensteiner for the win. We then get uh, to Joe Fowler, and you know what? There were a lot of people who came and went in WWF, WWE through the years. I actually thought Joe did pretty good. Uh, you know, I, you know, he wasn't around uh, very long, and, and he's he's Gill ish. You know, he's goofy, he's energetic, but he he, I didn't have a problem with him. He he kind of feels like he felt he, he felt like he belonged. Um, so yeah, looking back at his few interviews, I was getting ready to. To, to make fun of him, but I didn't really have a whole lot to make fun of. He seemed like he fit in with the whole wrestling shtick. So he gets welcomed by Vince and Joe is backstage with Shawn Michaels and Diesel. Shawn says the question of who is the greatest IC champ of all time, Mr. Perfect or Shawn. And Shawn says he's going to prove it's him. Diesel says the heartbreak kid can take care of the work in the ring. And everybody knows that chicks dig this guy. I'm just here to keep them off the champ. So we got very early Diesel here, Darren, and uh, sort of the bloated Shawn Michaels. And we get this match that, like you say, we got two good matches to to open. And then you look at this match on paper and we're thinking, wow, this is going to be a really good start. But for some reason, this match isn't bad, bad by any sense. 
We just expect so much more from these two guys, the way they were building it up. This is like what WWF would do, WWE would do nowadays. This is going to be the greatest wrestling match in history, you know. And and they put these expectations on a match that, I mean, these two guys, they went. I don't know if the plan was this is a start of a big long feud that we're going to go through. I don't because if this was it and this was you know an eleven minute match and and they had. They were building it like some classic. I, I, it just, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, so I, I couldn't have really intro this this match any better. Um, it, it's not a bad match. Uh, the, be honest with you, these two couldn't possibly have a bad match. No. With um, but that being said, when you know what Perfect can do, and you know what Michaels can do, the match falls short. Uh, and it falls short. Uh, well, number one, I will say this, and, and you briefly mentioned it. This is probably the heaviest I've ever seen Shawn Michaels mm-hmm. in any wrestling match. And Perfect is actually in better shape than I remember him in mm-hmm. uh, in terms of trimming off the fat. But Michaels is, I won't call him pudgy, but... And he's, he's, his trunks, yeah. he's wearing his trunks goofy high, too. Yeah. Like really, really high up. It's... it's yeah. It's a different look, yeah. I just say he hasn't shed the baby fat yet. At this mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Um, now the match builds slowly. You get some good moves within the match. Uh, you know, perfect hits a sweet drop kick at one point, as he always does. You know, Michaels does great job selling as he always does. But for these two, the match is pretty slow, and it's kind of a slow build. It almost has like a you know, a new Japan style. Now the yeah. problem with that is the match only goes 11 minutes. It doesn't get to a next level. Yes. It never gets to the point that you're waiting for the build to get to. And it just kind of ends out of nowhere with a count out. Like what? Like it made no sense. So, you know, I would understand it if it was the start of a feud that was going to continue for months and you were yep. going to get, more and more of these matches, but we know Perfect was banged up. This is actually his last pay-per-view match for about a decade, I think. And uh, aside from, you know, his random appearances that he would do, but yeah, it's just, there's a, it's a slow match. It's a slow build that leads to nothing and leads to a finish that doesn't make sense and comes out of nowhere. And you see this match and you go, man, this could have been so good and it just wasn't. Yeah, this is where the pay-per-view takes a big left turn. Mm-hmm. So, first of all, they do the entrances. They show up in the skybox the Radio WWF crew of Jim oh, yeah. Ross yeah. and Gorilla Monsoon. If that's your B team, <laughs> oh, man. I know, now, right? By the way, it just it feels awkward seeing Gorilla and Bobby the Brain Heenan not in together. the same arena at the same time, not together. I know. Bobby has a couple of really good lines on this show, but I got the sense he was trying too hard. And the <laughs> chemistry with him and Vince just wasn't quite there as much as it was with him and Monsoon. Nope. So they start off this match, and the first sign of trouble comes pretty early. Yes. They botch a sequence where they're supposed to hit the ropes in succession, and I think one of them is supposed to stop and hit an arm drag, and it looks clunky. Somebody overran the spot yeah. badly. 
Yeah. So you're going, eh, okay. Couple minutes later, perfect whips Michaels into the corner. Michaels leaps up before he hits the turnbuckle, and perfect doesn't follow. Uh oh. Yeah. They were they weren't just not on the same page. They weren't in the same book. Uh, not to mm-hmm. say this was bad, but it's just it certainly seemed like after the first couple of minutes, both of them sort of realized, you know what? It's not happening tonight. We're not getting out of second gear. This isn't going to have a finish anyway. You know, let's just get through this. And that's You're what right. we wound up having. It, it kind of felt like that. It, do, it did. Yep. Like watching now, it back. Now, Perfect gets pulled out by Diesel near the end of the match. Perfect hits Diesel to a big pop. And Heenan goes apoplectic saying, oh, hit a man with glasses. Hit a man with glasses. Not to mention the fact that Diesel is, you know, seven feet tall and about 320 pounds. You know, just saying. So they do that. Perfect gets tied up outside the ring, loses by count out. And that's not even the most polarizing count out finish of the evening. No. So you guys were right. This wasn't awful for what it was. It was fine. What I liken it to is there's a wrestling video game that's out there that I play. Uh, It's called TW and they just released a version of it earlier this year. And the worst in-game notice you can get when you've built up to a big match and kept two guys apart in this game, you put them together, you run the match and there's a big red note there that says worker a and worker B have absolutely zero chemistry. Oh God. (laughs) That's what happened here. And again, it's not to say that it's bad. It's not to say that it's unwatchable for what it is. It's fine. But when you see Shawn Michaels and Mr. Perfect, you expect something that's three times the match we got. If you didn't know the guys, yeah, it it would be better, honestly. Um, At the very beginning, Mr. Perfect throws his towel, and then a few seconds later, Bobby's silent, and he says, I got hit in the eye with something. What happened? Which I thought was pretty good. Um, Vince is just laying it on about how this may be the greatest IC title match of all time. You know, it's just the feel-out process early. You mentioned the botch. Um, some basic stuff that Bobby's just getting overly excited about. These two are showing you more moves than a go-go dancer, uh, you know. And, and you know, perfect with some chops. Sean Sean's bumping like crazy. They both bump around, you know, still pretty well. And the pace picks up for a few minutes. And Bobby says, "Look at these moves! Look at these moves!" <laughs> like, really? This is you've never seen this before. Um, perfect catching Sean slingshots him over the top rope. That's a good spot. Then Diesel starts getting involved. Um, they did a spot where Sean's got this backbreaker type submission on, and it just looks like Perfect's laying on his knee. It wasn't good. I'd never seen much of that from Sean. Uh, there was a nice drop kick from Perfect, though. A back, back body drop, knee lift, atomic drop for two. And Bobby and Vince are starting to have this running shtick about Bobby's former, uh, you know, when he used to say, do whatever you have to do to win. He says, I never said that. And then seconds later, Perfect gets a two count, and he says, you should have hooked the tights like I told you, dummy. So, uh, you know, Bobby does have some moments here, but I agree with Andrew. He just, he, he doesn't have the chemistry as he did with Gorilla, no way, shape, or form. Perfect hits the perfect plex. Sean has, and he has Sean pinned. Diesel pulls Mr. Perfect out at the count of two. They all battle outside. Sean gets tossed into the ref. Then the ref calls for the bell, and he counts out Mr. Perfect. It's just a bad finish, a match that we wanted so much more from. They built it like it was going to be this great all-time classic. And they 
I mean, honestly, you could tell with the booking, they had no intention for it to be that. So I, I hate when they do something like that. Why you're not gonna if you're gonna let this match go 25 minutes? And hey, Vince, you know, <laughs> you're the one making the calls here. Don't sell us on this match like it's gonna be the greatest thing in the world when you know it's only going 11 minutes here. And and just overall, bad taste in your mouth with this match. Um, after the match, Diesel attacks Mr. Perfect, leaves him laying. Todd Pettengale's talking to Sean in the uh, aisleway as he walks out. Sean says, all the questions have been answered. I'm the greatest IC champ. And then Mr. Perfect gets up and runs after them. I mean, just eh, eh, so much more we uh, we wanted from this. So Joe Fowler backstage with the one, two, three kid who is 21 at this time. And he looks it. This is both of their first pay-per-view kid is so nervous. He can barely talk. They mention the size advantage of IRS kid gives this super white meat baby face promo. And, uh, IRS says he grabs the mic. And he, his like short little, little, um, uh, little promos that he would cut like this. I just loved, he would grab the mic. Detroit used to be known as motor city. Now it's known as Tax Cheat City. It's just so stupid and simple, but it just makes me laugh, you know, to to hear. And um, out comes the one, two, three kid. Bobby says this is the first. This is the first time the kid has been up past eight o'clock, and he's got this great wispy mullet going on. It's great. I know Andrew loves that one. And um, we get a spinning heel kick early for the kid. And for a near fall, kids flying all over the place. IRS is using the power. Brain says uh, at one point. It hit him in the bicuspid. He says, I'm the brain. I know it all. And um, IRS is in charge. And Kid would have a small flurry here and there. IRS uses the ropes and an abdominal stretch. <laughs> this is a good bun from Bobby. Well, that's for balance. He can do that. Just so matter of factly. Like, oh, no. I mean, he can do that if it's for balance. It's no problem. And he said, cheating is only cheating when you get caught. So, uh, and bragging isn't bragging if you can do it. Kid is able to turn things around He gets a couple of two counts and near falls on IRS He picks up the pace but he gets nailed With a jumping clothesline from IRS For the win it's funny IRS won so Few matches you you were like What he has a finisher this is his fin- Is this a finisher or is this just what it, it was weird seeing him actually pick up a victory Here and uh, Again this it's probably Where Andrew was saying where it felt A lot like with the WCW pay-per-view We talked about a while back this just felt like Something that could have been on Monday Night Raw or on superstars, it didn't have the paper. It didn't have the pay per view feel. Even even like the Razor, because you're putting Razor over. If you're gonna put Kid over here, then I understand why you're doing this. But if you're gonna put IRS over, which I, I'm not, I don't even have a problem with you doing. If if you're gonna play the the kid's the underdog, and you know he wins here and there, that's fine. But this doesn't feel like it needed to be a pay per view match here. It went five minutes and forty four seconds, and. Again, not awful, not terrible, just a little out of place, Darren. And I, I mean, don't love it, don't hate it. It just seems seems like a, a raw match to me. Yeah, I was actually caught off guard. Like I didn't remember the match, and when I was watching it, I I just assumed that that the kid was going to win because yeah, he was kind of getting this little weird push now. Um, so I, I don't remember what they do with IRS after this immediately. I don't remember if he got. Any kind of like a serious push. I know he ends up, I know he ends up in an intercontinental title match with with Razor. I think at the following Royal Rumble. Um, so maybe he gets a little bit of a push after this. But I was surprised that that the one two three kid lost. Uh, and and I like, think oh. yeah, because he he's splitting. This is where they're they're splitting up now. 
So I guess maybe they're going to try to And, and the, I will say the one thing they did Vince did this a lot And, and them, they they built Like they would say things like IRS, one of the most capable wrestlers in the WWF. He could, you know, they wouldn't act like he was a jobber, you know. Right. And so maybe they did have some plans. It just, I don't know. Yeah, it, it's and you know, on on top on top of that, um, the match it's it it's almost a squash. Like he gets a couple yeah. of moves in, but that's pretty much it. I mean, the point of this match is to put over is to put over IRS and get him set up. So. Uh, that kind of caught me off guard. Look, like you said, I mean, this match has a feel of a of a raw filler superstar match, uh, not a pay per view match. And, and like I said, the the finish kind of caught me off guard, to be honest. I actually enjoyed this match. Okay. If you were to give me a choice of a number of different things that I could have taken off this pay per view, I wouldn't have taken this off because here's the thing: one, two, three, kid. At this point is just going so much faster than anyone else on the roster. It's not even funny. Everyone else looks like they're wearing cement shoes. And here comes the one, two, three kid, 21-year-old Sean Waltman, weighing maybe 160 pounds soaking wet, looking like a stiff breeze could knock him over. And he's flying around, bumping his butt off. This was a breath of fresh air. And for as much as we knock the IRS gimmick, for as much as we say he didn't win a whole heck of a lot in singles competition, the reason that he got some element of respect is because Mike Rotunda was a really good worker when he wanted to be. There were some matches that he worked as IRS, as Mike Rotunda, as any number of other people and gimmicks that he was part of, where he was actually pretty darn good in the ring. He was a good hand. They gave him this gimmick and... He wound up actually showing a little bit of range doing it. And now every once in a while, he'll show up on WWE television with the suspenders, the tie, and the briefcase. Everybody gets a good pop. You know what? There are worse legacies to have than that. And oh, by the way, Bray Wyatt's his kid. So there's that. (laughs) Now, this match has another really good quote for me, and that I'm surprised neither of you mentioned. IRS hits kid with a really stiff shot. Heenan goes, he hit him so hard, he knocked three zits off his cheek. Oh, yeah. I thought that, that was, was a really was a good, good line. Kid gets a couple of near falls. IRS gets what's known as the write-off out of nowhere for the pin, which I'll agree certainly looked out of nowhere. It looked as though they were allotted eight minutes, and somebody told the referee, hey, we need to get these guys out of here. Go home. And that's sort of what happened. Now, After the match comes the return, and thankfully this is the only time it happened on the entire show, of one of my least favorite things Bobby Heenan ever did, the brain scan with the telestrator. Oh, God, it's so bad. It was just so forcing it. Every time. I don't think there's ever been a good use of the brain scan at all, ever. It just seemed forced. It seemed like something extra as if Vince said, you know what? Bobby Heenan's missing something. Like Vince just watched a football game for the first time and saw John Madden doing it or something. You know what I mean? And and it was like, oh, we've got to do that. And it was, Bobby doesn't like it. He doesn't really sell it even, anything that he's doing well. You could tell it feels forced. He does the, what, the brain scan to draw out the 1040? Is that what he does on this one? Something like that, Yeah. yeah. So just yeah, one of from from a guy who who has a lot of hits, he, you're gonna have some misses in the brain scan. Was definitely one of them. We get to Todd Pettengale, who's talking with Bruce Hart and Owen, who give the an update on their family. And I mean, 
crazy, Darren, where Owen is a year later. Yeah. I mean, think about it. He, and this is the start for him of getting them in, getting really, because this is what Brett had said. All of this King storyline and getting the family involved was Brett's way of trying to get Owen in into the mix. You know, this is what Brett wanted. He wanted Owen to be in the mix. He knew how good Owen was and he wanted him to get a shot. And he so he kind of assumed at this point, you know what, maybe the best way is even if I have to, to get involved. And so you get Owen and Bruce here talking. And I think there was also some pr- some plans of, of you know Vince liking Bruce more than Owen initially, but Owen was just a much, much better worker, incredible worker here. So, you know, a year later, he's main eventing in that steel cage match with Brett for the title. And uh, right here, he's, he's you know, just guy in the crowd. Yeah, he, he actually opened the show with a dark match beating mm-hmm. Barry Horowitz, too. Mm-hmm. So that's it's amazing if you think about it. You know, 93 dark match against Barry Horowitz, 94 in the main event in the steel cage for the title with Brother Brett. That's a, you talk about going, you know, from one end of the spectrum to the other in a 365-day period. Um, Yeah, I mean, so for me, this part of the show really pisses me off. And it pisses me off because you know what you're supposed to have in this show. And this is what you get. Brett's supposed to be in the main event in a quote-unquote dream match with Hogan. But because Hogan refused to drop the belt to Brett, not only refused to drop the belt, but mainly because he didn't want to lose clean to Brett. Because, quote-unquote, from Hogan, wasn't his time yet, brother. We end up with Brett and Doink and Brett and Jerry Lawler. And I'm sorry, but listen, if you go through this entire card, Brett's getting the biggest reaction of the night, and he's fighting Doink and Jerry Lawler. What does that tell you? I mean, it's wild that that this is the the only thing that you can come up with for the guy who is supposed to be in in the main event. Um, look, that being said, you know, with Brett, the consummate professional, you'll never know how pissed off he was that this is what was going on. And yes, this does get Owen involved and sets up the Survivor Series. And the eventual Brett Owen, you know, back and forth and the stuff that goes on at the Rumble and, and off to the races we go. But I, I couldn't even watch this and enjoy it, even if it was good, even even enjoying, you know, just watching Brett. Because this is just so stupid that it, it, that this is, you know, one of your big pay-per-views of the year. And you have the guy that's going to be the face of your company for the next four years going up against the clown and, and, and a washed-up has-been at this point of his career. So, yeah, I mean... This is one of the reasons why this pay-per-view sucks, to be honest with you. Um, and and this is the political nonsense that Hogan caused in that the guy who is 10 times the wrestler of, of, of Hogan is stuck in the middle of a card fighting a clown and, and a self-proclaimed king. Uh, Darren, for Christmas, I'm getting you the Thunder in Paradise DVD box set. I hope you enjoy it, buddy. Oh, yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, yeah, listen, I mean, but that's what it is. And, and it's unfortunate uh, that that that's what this pay per view ends up, you know, being about. Looking back on it, uh, it's what it should have been and what it was instead, and that leads to a disaster of a main event that we'll talk about later. But yeah, I mean, this is just weird nonsense, and you know, I, I really don't know what else to say about it. Yeah. Now, here we run into 
where you start to find places to cut things so as to make for a smoother shell. I wish I had clocked this. I really wish that I had because Jerry Lawler seems to take about 20 minutes cobbling through the curtain, going down to ringside on crutches and cutting the promo that he cuts. It is not a bad promo. It's just a two minute promo that's stretched out to four or five minutes. Now, Doink comes out after that as the, quote, court jester. Okay, so the court jester is supposed to be something he laughs at, nobody takes seriously, whatever. If that's the case, why is Doink the Clown getting two-thirds of the offense against Bret Hart in this match? It is bonkers, it is backwards, and we're supposed to care about this why because doink a bucket of water on bruce hart at ringside just no this didn't work at all whatsoever the only way this could have worked is if doink comes in and brett kills him like minute and a half put him in the sharpshooter then you do the thing with lawler coming in and that's where we wind up getting the good part of this whole thing the problem is this was stretched to 20. You could have done it in 10. Uh, yeah, we'll get we'll, we'll start getting through this. So it takes a while for Brett to get out immediately, and Bobby calls him a chicken. And Brett looks pissed, and <laughs> Darren said this too. This is not the title coronation he was promised back when they took the title off of Mania. You know, Bobby is ripping on Stu and Helen, as you could imagine. And then Jerry's music plays. He comes out on the crutches, and... As Andrew said, just takes forever And Bobby said, oh, I knew about this earlier But I didn't want to say anything And Lawler slowly comes down the aisle Making faces as he does Said this was going to be the biggest night of his entire life He hates Bret Hart and he, his father and his brothers And the family And he gives a big story about arriving in this stinking city of Detroit And he went to rent a car And got the limousine and the brakes didn't work And the airbag didn't work And a little old lady pulled out in front of him And caused a 10 car pile up And he had to pull himself out of the fiery wreckage And nurses wanted to get him in, uh, Get him to the hospital But being the king that he is He said nothing will keep him from Bret Hart And he hobbled here on one leg With the doctors in the back Will not let him participate in any wrestling event tonight He calls Bret a coward And is going to let Bret get a beating From his court jester Doink As Andrew had mentioned Doink comes out with the two buckets One with confetti He tosses on the kids He tosses water and onto Bruce Hart And then Bret goes to work on Doink Bobby's now saying that he saw the car accident <laughs> And that Jerry is a hero What a man And this is just all Brett early Brett's, Vince says that Brett's been waiting since June 13th To get a match with Jerry the King And Owen's screaming in the background Vince says that Owen and Bruce and Stu And the whole family is angry And Bobby says wouldn't you be angry if Brett was your son <laughs> Which was kind of funny and quick um, Brett goes after Jerry But just Doink comes from behind and now has the advantage Doink locks in a submission Wally's holding the ropes, he misses off the top And Brett starts to set up his sequence Locks in the sharpshooter (laughs) All he does, Vince says If anybody can get out of the sharpshooter, it's Doink Really? Like, really? Uh, Jerry comes in with a crutch And he hits Brett in the back with the uh, While the sharpshooter's locked in So you get a DQ, Bobby says it's a miracle He can walk So uh, Vince keeps calling this a ripoff Jerry and Doink walk back down the aisle after uh, you know beating on Brett for a little while, and and Jack's honey comes out. Officials all over. They're holding Brett back. Um, Jack tells Fink that if Jerry doesn't come to the ring, he will be banned from the WWF for good. 
So now we get Jerry versus Brett and Brett lays in some punches and leads Jerry back to the ring Brett, uh, the bell rings, the crowd's loving this though I mean, I will say, this just feels like Jerry Lawler Memphis stuff That's the problem, this isn't 1993 stuff This is stuff that was like 85, 10 years ago stuff It just felt very not, and, and live crowd Not stuff that plays that well on TV you know, that's another thing here. This this shtick is great to live audiences, but it's not as good in a, in a TV sense product like we're we're seeing here. Um, so, you know, Vince is, says that Lawler obviously hates the Hart family, and and Bobby cuts in. Well, who doesn't? Uh, Jerry's choking out Brett with a crutch. Lawler uh, crotches Brett on the ring post. Brett is out in the ring. He hits Brett in the throat with a crutch. Brett with a a back heel. Low blow, and then Brett's back in charge Lawler tries to beg off, Brett lowers the straps himself Hits a pile driver, elbow off the second rope Pile driver, which was, you know, Jerry's uh, Jerry's move And he hits the sharpshooter Lawler gives up after 10 seconds But Brett will not let go DZ The bell keeps ringing, ringing. the officials try to get him off This thing, uh, there are three officials, four officials, five officials Bunch of executives, 10 people in the ring Can't get Brett to let go It actually takes 3 minutes and 30 seconds Before Brett finally lets go of the hold Yep And that's how you end up with the Disqualification of Brett And uh, pronouncing Jerry the King Waller as the Undisputed King Of the World Wrestling Federation And Waller gets stretchered out of there While holding one finger up in the air as he's on a gurney in triumph to end the <laughs> fantastic array of wrestling bravado uh, to wrap up a, a, an all-time wonderful segment of SummerSlam in which Bret Hart had to beat a king and a clown in which he ended up being disqualified anyway. Look, uh, yeah, I mean, like you said, the doink getting in six minutes of offense on Bret was weird. Um Brett getting disqualified here after the match. I, I okay. I guess that sets up the you know the match at the Survivor Series with the Brett family and uh, and the Royals. I guess this kind of keeps the thing going on a little bit because at this point you got nothing for Brett because you screwed him over. So you got to do something to stretch out the time. So I guess we're just gonna let him keep having a you know a feud with a. With a self-proclaimed king that hasn't really had a serious wrestling career uh, career in about ten years, but I mean, look, um, you know, you get Bruce involved, you get Owen involved. It leads to Owen getting a push, which is the silver lining in all of this, I suppose. Um, but this just encapsulates a really weird time in WWE. Darren, are you there? Oh yeah, you don't hear. Did me? we lose Darren? No, I got I got DZ. You, you, oh, you got... did we lose me? Oh, uh oh, uh oh. <laughs> Andrew, can you I hear feel us? As though we've lost someone. Uh oh, hold on. Let's let's see this for a second. Uh, hold on one second, Andrew. Uh, so you can't hear me, Andrew. What the hell was that? Are you good? <laughs> I, I I hang on. Uh, it's a little choppy, but I can hear you. Okay. Okay. There was now one I moment... can't hear a thing. Okay. There was. <laughs> That's so great. This is hilarious. This, this is, is and I'm gonna leave this in too because I like this. This is definitely gonna be left in. Um, there was what a moment. Happened? There, I don't know. There was one moment earlier where you were uh, a little cutting in and out, but it probably missed like one word that you said. Nothing, nothing big. But can you hear us now? Now I can hear you. Yes. Okay. Okay. I'm not. I'm not redoing that whole thing. No. Uh, no. Definitely. <laughs> definitely not. Definitely and, not. 
Andrew, this shit sucks. Take it over. That was, yeah, that was hilarious. So, uh, yeah, go ahead, Andrew. Uh, okay, so I don't know how this is going to sound in post-production, but to those of you out there in podcast land, what happened was, in the words of Bobby Heenan, my monitor went black. <laughs> Everything wound up just sounding incredibly slow. Darren basically sounded like he was on Quaaludes. I have no idea what Darren said. So I'm just going to assume, just for the moment, that Darren said, this is all Hulk Hogan's fault. I hated it. <laughs> so we are back. That was hilarious. We were uh, having some technical difficulties. For Does a somebody moment. want to tell me what the hell happened? Andrew was talking. <laughs> he was cutting it out. We know Darren and I were laughing. It was just, it was hilarious. But, um, but we were into basically Andrew giving his thoughts on the fiasco that was Bret Hart Hart versus Doink and then Bret versus Jerry the King that again it's you know we got some really great talent and great performers on this show Andrew but they're just in spots you know that we look back and scratch our head when we've got Yoko Zuna going 17 minutes in the main event with Luger that are two of the, I mean, you're ranking the workers on this card. There are five or six that you'd stack at least above Luger and and Yokozuna. You know, also big man who can sort of move, but you're never going to confuse him with a good worker. It just is a, it's such a shame, especially you know for someone like me who's a huge Bret Hart fan. I know Darren too to see him in this spot here when we know what he could have and should have been doing. You know what it's like? It's like if you have an A-list podcast personality and you let him go on a rant for three minutes and you don't hit the record button. (laughs) It was going in and out. It was in and out. I'm going to try my hardest to try to replicate everything I just said. For those of you out in podcast land, and yes, I'm checking now because I am seeing we are recording. I'm going to try to do this verbatim. So... You get Brett and Jerry Lawler, and for what this is, it's fine. You get top-notch angle advancement. The problem is, this is SummerSlam. This is one of the four biggest shows of the entire year. And the second biggest match that you've been booking on this show, and the third biggest match you've been booking on the show, like the IC title match, or I guess the top four, let's say those two and the Undertaker match, you did the same thing in the IC title match. It felt like it was the starting point and not a finishing point. Yeah, and yes, Jerry Lawler doing the thing at the end where he gets stretchered off, holds the one finger in the air, and you get Bobby Heenan going, God save the king, that's hysterical. And The Rock would rip that off at WrestleMania five years later for the match with Shamrock, where, by the way, they did the exact same finish. Shamrock gets the submission, doesn't break the hold, decision gets reversed, Rock gets stretchered off, Rock holds the title up in the air, he's number one. Gee, you really think that was a fresh idea? Here's where it started. Jerry Lawler is an expert in heel psychology. There are some times where his in-ring work is a little dodgy and doesn't necessarily mesh right with his opponent. Here it was fine, and you get Lawler being the smarmy heel that everybody wants to punch. My big problem with this is, between all of the pre-match stuff with Lawler hobbling out, Brett against Doink, 
and Brett against Lawler, that's 20 to 25 minutes. You could have done this in half the time and it would have been just as effective, maybe yep. even more so. That's my big problem with this. And now hopefully, I'm really, really hoping that all of the technical issues are a thing of the past. Or if there are further technical issues, it comes out, let's see, two matches down the list. <laughs> the, the So you could at least say to this point that th- there were some things that we were disappointed in. You know, Shawn Michaels, Mr. Perfect, all of Bret Hart's involvement here, IRS, one, two, three kid, maybe doesn't need to be on the show. But but you wouldn't really have looked at anything here and said, this was so bad, I got to change the channel. You just wouldn't have looked at anything there that said it was really good. You know, you had the opening two matches that were fine, you know, maybe average and then slightly above average after that. It, it was here. In the next two matches, really, and the way they are are carded back to back, and then the next three out of the four matches, really, because there's one in the middle of them that I don't mind, but we get Ludwig Borga here, and this is Ludwig Borga out on the streets in a rundown area. He calls out Lex Luger. He says, this is what you're proud of. I bet the Lex Express never stopped here. He mentions, wow, it's like check the boxes of all the cliches, welfare checks, high school dropouts, so-called land of opportunities. And it's, again, you're watching this This is like what they would do with Hogan You could tell that he's being built as the next challenger You just didn't put the title on the guy, Luger It doesn't make, again, like when you see Ludwig Borga here And you know the only reason why he's here is this anti-American guy To be a next challenger for Luger It makes even less sense that Luger's not winning the title at the end Where you've got this guy they're already building And... It's just another head scratcher About everything going on at this show And we get a big pop from Marty Jannetty IC, IC, former IC champ Out to the Rockers music Ludwig Borga is undefeated Uh, Quickly Marty turns his back on Borga Who immediately attacks And it just there. This match goes by What? It ends up going 5 minutes and 15 seconds It is so slow So bad I, I will say this Ludwig look like himself He looks like a tough guy Like he looks like a guy you wouldn't want to You know get into it with But as soon as he gets into the ring It's slow, it's plotting um, It just you, know, you, get a, you get a small flurry from Marty I think twice and then That immediately gets quashed by Borga Another small comeback Boom, immediately uses the power again It's just slow as hell all around This is again to me like We're watching the Brett and Lawler stuff that felt like this that was something that should have been done, you know, you know, in Memphis a decade before with Jerry. This felt like something that Vince would have been doing, you know, in the late 80s with Hogan. It just felt out of place. And and I don't even I, I don't mind it if you're going to go with it and have him have you know be the guy for Luger, which you never do. So altogether, this just bothers me because he's bad in the ring. It didn't ever end up going anywhere And apparently backstage he was a, a Pretty miserable prick also And just like not a guy that was like a very Nice guy and a good wor- And just like a good guy to have in the locker room So I just I don't have a whole lot Of good to say about this match DZ No um, I mean you want some interesting stuff On uh, on Ludwig Borga Whose uh, real name Was uh, Tony Halme 
He actually raced over. I uh, raced. Well, I'm in horse racing mode. <laughs> I he always actually, do that. I always yeah, do that. <laughs> yeah, he, act, he actually wrestled over in Japan. In uh, in New Japan, uh, had matches with uh, Barry Windham and uh, Bam Bam Bigelow over there. Uh, he was even involved in a bit of a feud with the the Hellraisers, which was the makeshift uh, Legion of Doom when Hawk kind of went uh, AWOL from WWF, and you had that whole uh, Warrior Hawk and Power Warrior gimmick. And uh, he was even involved in another thing with Ron Simmons. So he actually had some matches with some pretty high-profile guys. Came over here, and you could tell he was a big guy that uh, you know McMahon was going to try to push. And like you said. You know, you get everything here with the promo going into the match where it looks like this is going to be, you know, the next big thing uh, to face Luger, who's presumptively going to win the title, except Luger doesn't win the belt. And when you go back and you realize that Luger was going to win the belt until a point in time very short, shortly before the pay-per-view. We don't know if it was day of if it was that weekend, but we know based on what we've heard come out of a lot of people's, uh, you know, takes and uh, revisionist history of what transpired, that the plan was for Luger to win the belt at SummerSlam for a long time. And then Vince changed his mind at the last minute. Now, again, when the last minute was, we don't know. And perhaps this Ludwig Borga promo was filmed at a time that Luger was still supposed to be winning the belt, which then it would make a lot more sense. And they just decided to keep the feud going and not cut the promo. Um, yeah, the match is awful. Uh, these two have styles that just don't work together at all. Uh, you know, it ends in a submission move, a torture rack by Borga. Uh, I mean, this which guy... Which is went, hilarious because that's yeah. Luger's move. Yeah. In exactly. WCW that he never ended up using in WWF, which I thought yeah. was kind of a little funny, uh, funny thing too. Yeah, and we've we've talked about that before. Why couldn't Luger use the torture rack in, in WWE? And then this guy shows up and uses the torture rack. Um, but yeah, I mean, he goes into a feud with Luger, and you know, there's going to be some stuff uh, that goes on with with Tatanka. He actually ends Tatanka's undefeated streak of two years uh, that fall to kind of keep his thing going. Uh, he mocked the whole, like, Luger narcissist thing. And, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes on with Borga. And then he ends up hurting his ankle in a match with Rick Steiner. And everything with him goes out the, the window. And he leaves and he leaves the company probably about nine months after he debuted. So uh, he was in there for a hot minute. And uh, the, the feud with Luger never materialized. So Ludwig Borga, everything about him, including this match, is pretty awful from start to finish. So they tried to paint Ludwig Borga as this monster, which, if you're in promo mode, works fine. Then you put him in the ring with somebody and you realize he's six foot two, which yeah. is in no way monster build, monster height, whatever. He's just another guy. Yeah. Another thing that I didn't particularly care for, and there's a bigger example of this later on in the show, there was a big anti-American slant with Borga, whatever. He obviously does not respect America, says Vince. He's billed as being from Helsinki, Finland. Last I checked, America and Finland, maybe they weren't exactly best friends, but they were pretty tight. 
I mean, they would see each other at, you know, NATO and be able to, you know, converse with one another. <laughs> it's not as though it was the country next door. Gee, if yeah. only there was a big, huge country next door, that would be a convenient place for Ludwig freaking Borga to be from that would make sense as far as an anti-American slant is concerned. And eh, that doesn't really exist. And there's no way they would ever do anything like medal in presidential elections or anything like that. Political commentary aside, this match sucked. Marty Jannetty did everything he possibly could to sell for Ludwig Borga, but if you put lipstick on a pig, it's still a pig. And this was just, this wasn't good. I don't know what they ever saw in this gimmick. The guy may have had potentially threw decent punches, that's for sure. That's more than a lot of other big guys on the roster have. More on one of them in just a little bit. That's called foreshadowing kids. But this match stunk. If there's a silver lining in any of this, it's that, Darren, I heard you loud and clear. <laughs> and and what what makes it even worse um, is, is the placement um, on the card. I mean, this is just another squash. Again, something they, they want to get them on the pay-per-view up for sure. This is just another thing you could have done on Raw. But I understand that's fine. You want to get them on the pay-per-view and stuff. But this is just awful. We get an ad for 93 Survivor Series back when it used to be Thanksgiving Eve, which I'm actually surprised they haven't done that now with the, the network. They don't need to do a pay-per-view on Sunday like they used to. They could have kind of a fun Wednesday night show and do kind of an old-school throwback with some tag team. The, the problem with the Survivor Series nowadays, and a little bit of a tangent, is that they just don't feel like there are enough stakes. They did some kind of a thing where the Survivor's... Or enter, you know, or like they did maybe the sole survivor match. Somebody wins, or the winners get a title shot. Anything to make it seem a little more stakes to just kind of feel like tag matches that we see on on Raw and SmackDown all the time. But uh, I did like it when they used to do it on the the Wednesday night before. Um, there's always a th- Thanksgiving and, and the Christmas holidays right around then were always huge the traditional wrestling holidays uh, back in the day. So this match next. We get the rest in peace match It's a no disqualification must be a winner match Which is hilarious because The Undertaker never does anything Remotely that he could have Gotten disqualified for Doesn't use any weapons, does nothing And what sucks for The Undertaker in this particular match Is that he can't do a tombstone On Giant Gonzalez He can't really do anything to Giant Gonzalez Because the guy can't take a bump he is one of the worst workers you will ever see And it's funny that he's placed after Ludwig Because Ludwig was pretty bad in his WWF run As Darren had mentioned And th- this Giant Gonzalez was just abysmal So Giant Gonzo comes down with Harvey Whippleman Holding the urn They've stole it from The Undertaker and Paul Bear And Gonzalez is in that bodysuit Which is horrible He was a big skinny guy And he didn't really look imposing You know, He would just look tall and skinny So they threw this muscle Airbrushed muscle Sort of spandex on him Full body suit that just looked horrible At least at this point they had gotten Rid of the body fur that he had When he initially debuted Um, Like the hair like he was like Some sort of a gorilla Um, And Vince says that he stole the urn and Bobby Says no he earned it (laughs) Which was just like bad dad joke here uh, Big pop for Taker's music and, and, You know Darren said we get The two biggest pops of the night And not that they, the, the crowd wasn't into Lex They were fine with Lex But the two biggest stars of the night are Brett and, and Undertaker 
And and it's like, what are you doing with you with these guys that have been around for you for a few years and are obviously super over and could very easily be in main event spots for you? You're creating this Lex guy who was a heel two two months ago. You haven't given him any time to build, any time to really marinate and really let people get behind him. You've you you sort of fast tracked this because Hogan left, and we got Yoko in the mix. It just you know. So here's Taker, and he goes right after. Uh, Gonzalez, you get the long Undertaker entrance, and he walks down the aisle alone with no Paul Bear. He raises the lights, goes right after Giant Gonzalez, choking him, and then Harvey Whippleman distracts the Undertaker. Giant Gonzalez gets control. Some of his slow, awful-looking, horrendous-looking punches. I mean, he cannot move at all. Taker hits him, and he just wobbles, but he doesn't fall. Taker knocked, gets knocked down, but he ends up sitting up, and he's having to bump. And throw himself all over the place Because Gonzalez Not only can he not bump He can't dish out any offense either He can't dish out anything that looks Imposing whatsoever He grabs the chair Gives a couple of weak chair shots to Taker's back Undertaker's down outside And then uh, Giant Gonzalez tosses him Into the ring steps Undertaker's reaching out for the urn And Giant Gonzalez is working on him Slowly for over five minutes And then Thank goodness that the Undertaker's music hits And here comes Paul Bear with a black wreath Harvey Whippleman takes off his jacket And these two are about to brawl Harvey runs at Paul at Paul Bear Who gives him a clothesline, lays him out Then Paul walks over and grabs the urn And that's when things start to turn for the, uh, the Taker I mean, Giant Gonzalez can't even do a basic body slam He drops Undertaker on his legs He doesn't even slam him on his back He slams him on his legs he looks all over at uh, and Paul Bear has the urn and he holds it up and then the Undertaker sits up. Here comes the dead man. Taker with five clotheslines. Giant Gonzalez falls down to one knee. The Undertaker gets up to the top rope, flying clothesline. That's it for the win. That's it. Th- that's all they could do. You, when, you, when you you know you look back and you wonder why? Why is that it? Why aren't they doing more? This guy couldn't do anything else. I mean. I think they probably could have had Undertaker use some weapons, give me a chair shot, a couple other things than this flying clothesline, which he used a couple times, I think, against big men that he couldn't get up for or they weren't able to take the the pile driver, the you know tombstone. This was just, I mean, you feel bad, Darren, for the Undertaker here because there's nothing this guy can do. There's absolutely nothing you can do with this guy And he's trying This is one of the first times we're seeing him really get Like Undertaker throwing his body around Because he has no choice He has to try to bump You you know you're in trouble When the best move in a match Is a clothesline delivered by Paul Bearer To Harvey Whippleman on the outside Um, Look So Giant Gonzalez to give you some background, because there's no point in really talking about the match. Giant Gonzalez was an Argentinian basketball player who was actually drafted in the third round of the 1988 NBA draft by the Atlanta Hawks. But he was legitimately seven feet, seven inches tall. Mm-hmm. He had serious uh, knee injuries, serious ankle issues. And he could not play basketball in the NBA, despite being on the Argentinian national team, which is why he got drafted. 
So who is the owner of the Atlanta Hawks that drafted uh, Jorge Gonzalez? That would be one Ted Turner, who in turn then gave him a job in WCW as a wrestler known as El Igante. He actually was a wrestler in WCW for nearly three years. Mm -hmm. And he even had a long feud with, wait for it, Flair with Rick Rick frickin' Flair in the WCW heavyweight championship picture. He actually participated in the infamous Chamber of Horrors match at Halloween Havoc 1991 and had feuds with a bunch of other guys that are fairly big names that you would know about. How that ever happened when you watch this guy in the ring, you don't know. And the real sad thing for me, to that, I mean, it couldn't have really put a bow on this particular feud and, and match any better. This ends with a an attempt at a face turn by Giant Gonzalez getting in the face of Harvey Whippleman, choking him, and then hitting him with a choke slam. Now, this guy, Giant Gonzalez, probably weighs somewhere in the neighborhood of 375 pounds just because he's 7 feet 7 inches tall. Harvey Whippleman might weigh a buck 30. I could choke slam Harvey Whippleman with my left hand because he's that small. Now when you now granted when you choke slam somebody you do need some help because the guy has to do something that the guy that's being choke slammed has to do something that's called post. And by posting it means that their that their hand will be on the other person's shoulder and when they get lifted up they help in the lift by using that hand to to kind of straighten the arm out and get the most height out of the choke slam that they can get. Harvey's not going to post too well. That being said, he still weighs 130 pounds. He couldn't even get him off the ground. It was the weakest and lowest choke slam you've ever seen in your life. Now, I, I mean, how anybody ever saw this guy and not only thought that they could do something with him, but thought that the idea was to put him in a feud with The Undertaker right out of the gate. This was going to be your big thing for The Undertaker in 1993. It boggles the mind how sometimes these guys have great ideas, great returns of wrestlers, great debuts of wrestlers like Chris Jericho and Sting and the stuff that they've done. And then at the same time, they can come up with this nonsense. It just blows me away. It it is Giant Gonzalez, in my opinion, with the exception of the gobbledygook turkey thing at Survivor Series, is probably the single worst thing that Vince McMahon has ever come up with. Yep. And Andrew, before uh, to just to kind of set the scene for following, as Darren was mentioning about that face turn. So they were going to have a bat. I guess it looked like they were going to have a feud with Adam Baum, who was a, a Whippleman's other guy. It, it, that never really happened. And he was in a battle royal that was for the Intercontinental Championship on Monday Night Raw. They all teamed up to eliminate him right away. And then that was it. He was gone in October. So you just this was really his last big moment. It was just so weird to see the face turn because that seemed like a weird place for it too. It, when this is guy been the guy that was evil, he used chloroform on the Undertaker in storyline in kayfabe. He's been this a, a miserable guy. Why do you want to give him any moment at the end at all? Period. This should have just been you know the Undertaker's moment at, at to end the feud and move on. 
Andrew, I'm sure you loved this match. I'm going to take what Darren said, and I'm going to put a little bit of a spin on it. Poor Giant Gonzalez for a lot of reasons. So he plays basketball for the Argentinian national team. I had a fair amount of research done on this. Darren took about two-thirds of my stuff. But he does that, gets drafted by the Atlanta Hawks. Well, his body betrays him, and he can't play basketball. So what's he going to do? Winds up getting a job as a professional wrestler. And look, if you're Giant Gonzalez in that situation, for one, you know your time as a top-end athlete is incredibly limited because of your size and because at some point, your body is going to betray you, and unfortunately, you're probably going to die pretty badly, as most that size generally do. He winds up getting the job with WCW, and Darren, to answer your question as far as why they could possibly allow El Gigante to be a main event player, Darren, I have two words for you, Jim Hurd. That was the reign of Jim Hurd, a.k.a. the Pizza King, and that very nearly killed WCW because he was the guy that wanted to take Ric Flair, have him pierce his ear, cut his hair, and call him Spartacus. That <laughs> was one of the ideas of one Jim Hurd. We could have an entire <laughs> podcast talking about the <laughs> ideas of Jim Hurd and how Jim Hurd almost single-handedly killed WCW and how it took the arrival of Hulk Hogan three years after he was gone to revive WCW. However, we're going to talk about Giant Gonzalez here because for as much of a real-life sympathetic figure as he was, for as much as he probably deserves better treatment by wrestling fans, because look, this was a guy who needed a job in the worst way possible, and it wasn't his fault that he got put in that position. What was he saying? Say no to Ted Turner? That just wasn't going to happen. So he winds up being a professional wrestler for a couple of years, and it's not pretty. El Gigante was bad. Giant Gonzalez was 10 times worse. You have The Undertaker not exactly in worker mode yet, as he would be 10, 15 years later. This was a guy who, whenever he left his feet, it was shocking. That's how he was still being booked. You bring in Giant Gonzalez. You have arguably the worst WrestleMania match in the history of that pay-per-view. And then you get this, which the only compliment I can pay it is, it's better than the WrestleMania match. So Taker comes out, gets the giant bell rings. A minute in, nobody cares. The crowd is dead. Absolutely stark raving dead. A couple minutes later, has the upper hand. They're stumbling around. Gong! And you hear on the announcer, the, the announcer's booth saying, oh, there must have been a music malfunction. Nope, it's Paul Bearer. That was a huge pop. Yeah. That was fun. I enjoyed that. He comes down with the stupid wreath. He lays the stupid wreath at ringside. Harvey Whippleman takes off his stupid jacket and takes his stupid clothes. <laughs> and you know what? It was stupid, but it was fun. At yeah. the very least, we finally it was like the highlight of the match, just like Darren said. Match. Yeah. And then Paul Bearer gets the urn. Taker does the sit up. He does the one move he can do on Giant Gonzalez. Wham, bam, we're done. Thank goodness that's over. I never want to have to watch that match again. But at any rate, 
Gonzalez doesn't exactly get the best shake with wrestling fans. Yes, he was horrible, but when you're put in that kind of a position where you only have a certain window of time to make money off of your incredible size, I, I can't say I'd have handled it much differently than he did. He just got put in one horrible situation after another, and unfortunately, he did wind up dying very badly of diabetes back in 2010, so not exactly the happiest story there, but you guys are right. This feud, uh, unwatchable. Some of the worst stuff Undertaker ever did. Yeah, it's just uh, unfortunate here. Um, Giant Gonzalez and The Undertaker. This is done, at least. Joe is backstage with Yokozuna, Jim Cornette, and Mr. Fuji. And Cornette says, let me tell you something, hatchet head. You need to sit down, take a value, and just listen to what I've got to say. And then Jim goes off on a rant. It was a pretty good promo, though. He talks about how the heavenly bodies got ripped off, and then he changes the topic to Yokozuna. And and what I like what they did here production-wise. As Jim was talking about Yokozuna, they get the close-up of Yoko's stare in his face, which made him look imposing and, and evil. And then they widen the shot back, and, and Jim continues cutting the Good Hill promo on Lex. He says, the last thing you're going to hear tonight is Yoko saying, it is, and then Yoko says, Banzai! So... Yeah, not not bad. I mean, basic heel cornet promo stuff, but it it was solid, pretty good. And and then DZ, you know what? This next match was fine. I didn't have a problem with the smoking guns, Tatanka versus Bam Bam and the Head Shrinkers. There was a six man tag. These guys can all work pretty well, and it was you know exactly what you would expect from a six man tag like this in and out pretty quick early then there's a spot for about 5 minutes the heels isolate one of the baby faces they start to slow it down then you're going to get the spots where everybody's in the ring and things go crazy and it's you know you get the three the three on one with you know with the heels working on the baby face and the crowd was hot for this it was fine and i think Darren i think what ends up happening is this match is okay it feels like incredible because what it comes after it comes after the Borga Marty Janetti and then it comes after Undertaker Giant Gonzalez so you've got about 20 minutes of absolute crap and even right before that you've got the Lawler Brett stuff which isn't like an in-ring classic it's just more about storyline moving forward so you got a lot of crap leading up to this and then you got this match where oh it's actually a match where guys are working moving can do legitimate moves Tagging in and out And it's just, you know, to me Average to above average six-man tag match Yeah, I, I don't know If it was just because Of its placement in the card And what it was surrounded by I, I, For my money, I actually thought this was The best wrestling match of the card uh, It might have been It might have been, yeah, yeah, I had a lot of fun with this And and I, listen it, Like I said, it could be because of what it was Surrounded by uh, that maybe it made it seem better than it was, but but I thought these guys worked their asses off, and I, and I thought it was a uh, I thought it was a really good match. I thought uh, Bam Bam Bigelow, you know, for all the things that were lousy in 1993, you can make an argument that that Bam Bam Bigelow was one of WWE's star performers that year. MVPs. Um, yeah, I, I really thought I really thought his his run at King of the Ring was excellent. His match with Brett, I thought, was fantastic uh, in the King of the Ring final. Um, he's really, really active in this match, showing off why he's one of the most, you know, agile big men uh, that we see uh, in, in WWE. Um, you have two uh, soon-to-be or will-become tag champions uh, in the Smoking Guns 
and the head shrinkers in there. You have Tatanka, who's still in the midst of his undefeated strength. He gets he gets most of the positive looks from the standpoint of you know being on the side of the face. Uh, gets the big comeback, you know, kind of winning thing at the end. Um, you know, I, I thought that uh, I thought that the head shrinkers and the guns kind of took a step forward here from where they were, and I, and I thought this match might have showed that off a little bit and would lead to some better days down the road for them. Uh, it was an unexpectedly good match for me. I didn't remember mm-hmm. it. I back, agree. But uh, I thought, again, maybe compared to the rest of the card, thought it was a highly entertaining match. I'm going to go a step further, Darren. I'm going to offer a bold proclamation. There are six guys in this match. Bart Gunn, Billy Gunn, Tatanka, Fatu, Samu, Bam Bam Bigelow. I think this was the best match any of them ever had. I have this as a legitimate four-star match. All six guys brought it. Bam Bam is flying around the ring. He's a legit 350 pounds, and he's flying out there like he's 210, 220. He takes a backdrop early in the match. He takes a couple of really cool bumps into the ring post. They do a triple headbutt spot off the top turnbuckle that misses. Tatanka winds up getting the roll-up. There's a fantastic spot where Bart Gunn tries to ram Fatu's head into the canvas, except one problem wrestling history experts, <laughs> you can't hit a Samoan nope, in the head. Nope. So that backfires hysterically. Fatu springs up and hits a clothesline. Bart does the flip sell for it. I loved this match. And maybe some of me loving this match as opposed to really liking it is because the back half of this card is so lousy. But I, on its own, I still think this is a legitimate four-star match. And I'd be hard-pressed to find anything else that any of the other six guys ever did. Bam Bam had a couple of three-and-a-half-star matches with Brett that were at least somewhat close. He had the match with Lawrence Taylor that was way better than it had any right to be. But I still stand by it. This was a really good six-man match. For me, it was the highlight of the card. And it wound up soothing some ills from the two previous matches. Unfortunately, the booking of the last one would sort of take the Band-Aid, rip it off, and pour salt into the wound. Uh, you know what, W, at this time, you know, from for about, you know, late 80s till mid-90s, WWF did a really good job with situations like this where we had seen and we were going to see this really long Tatanka Bam Bam, you know, feud. And we saw a bunch of Tatanka Bam Bam matches. We would see a bunch of Smoking Guns Head Shrinker stuff. But this was a case when by making this a six-man, it made it so much better. We didn't have to have – we got to get all the good stuff in 11 minutes instead of two 10-minute matches with these two or yeah. two eight-minute matches that would have had – it just would have been not as good. We wouldn't have gotten the in and out. We wouldn't have gotten the quick spots. The pace wouldn't have been as quick for either of them. There would have been more slowdown spots. We've talked about that a lot in Tatanka's matches. He got to be at a quick pace in here because he didn't have to worry about that five or six minutes in the middle where, uh oh, I'm going to have to slow things down a little bit and get in these rest holds because I'm going to have to have my little build up spot again at the end. You don't have to worry about that in a six man tag. I, I love some of these six mans or are some of the most surprising matches when we look back on shows a lot of times because everybody knows going in, okay, cool, I'm going to have my four minutes in the ring. I'm just going to go bonkers when I'm in there. And I don't have to worry about holding back whatsoever. And th- thank goodness we got this match in 
between this, you know, four final matches on the card. And there were f- some funny things early on. <laughs> so, you know, you've got t- the smoking guns who are the cowboys and Tatanka, who's the, the, Indian, the Native American, and uh, J- Bobby says it's just like the Dallas Cowboys and the Cleveland Indians. They're not winners, which was, I thought was funny. Um, Tatanka and Bam going at it early, and then yeah, just quick tags in and out. Everybody's getting their moments. You know, the Billy Gunn looks goody. It's like a face buster early on, and then they slow it down. They they isolate Bart for about five minutes. Bam Bam misses a splash, then Bart tags Tatanka, who comes in House of Fire. Big cross body off the top rope for two. Samu's supposed to break. Up the pin but he's late The So the ref has to kind of pause There's like one sort of botch where he has to kind of stop for a second um, But they, they pick right back up Bam Bam hits a ghetto blaster um, Double like double kick To the back of Tatanka's head Then things get crazy everybody's in the ring And I mean the crowd was really hot I, I completely agree with you guys I really enjoyed it And it was much needed Towards the, the back end of a show That was really struggling Joe Fowler is out with Hank Carter, the bus driver of the Lex Express This guy talks about some of the memories on the road He bumbles through some of his words And, you know, Joe, this is another situation where This is hard where you put him, you put him in a spot Where this guy can't talk very well And I thought Joe did a decent job Just trying to get something out of him And he, you know, he said You know, this is probably the easiest question Or the dumbest question I've ever asked Who do you think is going to win tonight in the main event? And, you know, he's obviously said Lex and uh, and then before we get in the main event, we'll mention point like, of order before we move on. Please do. I just want to say something. They couldn't have gotten him a ticket in the arena. They right? had to keep him out by the bus. Come on. on. Watching the tape, watching on his little TV or whatever it is. Yeah. He couldn't. He couldn't be backstage even. You know what I mean? Just watching on a monitor from there. Anything at all. Um. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Todd's now in the the crowd talking with. Uh, random fan Bruce Who is draped in red, white, and blue sheets Or maybe even drapes He mentions, you know, that he went to I think some sort of a uh, a Store to get to get these, you know And he's just decked out in the red, white, and blue Completely going oh, absolutely crazy a, I actually saw Bruce at a Trump rally in Tallahassee <laughs> <laughs> That's so great <laughs> Yeah, that's That's him, alright That's, uh, that's this Bruce. Um, then it's uh, it's main event time. And again, I said this at the beginning. They make the main event feel like a big match. It actually sort of the way they're setting it up. It feels like a WrestleMania main event. Even the the there were a few things I thought were strange though. Okay, we get no video package at all. So think about where we are in the timeline of the WWE year, 1993. We're at SummerSlam. The pay per view before this. Lex Luger is the narcissist We don't and, and obviously he goes through the transformation You know July 4th the, the slam on the USS Intrepid and then stuff on Raw Why don't we get any of that here WWF is so At this point and WWE now They were still they were really good With their packages even at this point When they weren't as good as they are now At least letting us know Giving us some backstory Building it up Hell some of those older ones with Hogan's They they would go 15 minutes showing you a package Building everything up All the Saturday night's main events We get none of that here Could you imagine if you were just a, somebody who was watching pay-per-views In the month or two months before You're watching the narcissist Get eliminated in the first round of the King of the Ring In a double in a time limit draw and then this is the guy in the main event Here we get nothing None of how he transforms Which 
I just, it, we get that video package after, which is bizarre. Why don't we get that video package of him doing the Lex Express on the road right now? Right now. This is when it's supposed to be. Um, Did somebody forget to push play? Right? <laughs> I mean, really, it just, it was almost like, what? Where is the part of him slamming Yoko on the fourth? How he became Mr. Babyface USA? I just, you know, then it, then they get to the, the Japanese national anthem gets sung. And Yokozuna's entourage comes out And it feels big match Macho Man comes out with Aaron Neville Who's going to sing the American National Anthem Macho's decked out in his red, white, and blue And and this is what I had said earlier too Man, a Macho Man versus Yoko match here The crowd is hot for Macho That would have been fun Uh, Get Macho the belt and then let Macho You know, give it to Brett I don't know if that's the plan that you want down the line That would have been really cool Macho still, as we saw when he went over to WCW He still had plenty left in the tank Neville sings the uh, national anthem it, Even Yoko Coming out first Screams Oh Lex is going to win You got the champion coming out first And you got the baby face hero that you've been building up Coming out last He's absolutely winning the title here And Macho gets the mic again It's my honor and my privilege To introduce To you The next World wrestling Federation champion Lex Luger, and not bad. He, you know, he he was really slow when he was doing it too. And the thing too, it he comes out to Stars and Stripes Forever, which we understand. But one, it makes it reminds me of Hacksaw, who's had it at different little times, and it doesn't feel like the main eventer music. It feels like a mid-card guy, like a babyface guy, like a Mr. America character. It's not it doesn't to me feel like the guy music coming down the ring. And we get loud USA chants before the bell and even the stare down at the beginning feels like a big deal. Fuji acts like he's going to come in the ring behind Lex and try to give Yoko the advantage and um Yoko has bulked up, Lex has slimmed down so he's quicker. Lex but Lex is smart early. He's outsmarting Yoko and Yoko's handlers. Yoko gets a big uh, slam on early. They go back and forth with a, a decent pace for these two early on. Yoko's back in charge. He chokes Lex Luger and then Vince talks about how they really don't know how much Yoko weighs. Again, Fuji tries to come in from behind with salt to the eye, but Lex sees it and he gets out of the way and Lex goes for the body slam early on Yoko, but he can't get it. And Yoko starts to slow things down This he is a, is where he sets up Lex Laying against the ring post outside And he splashes into him He misses with a chair shot And that sort of wakes Luger up You get a double axe handle off the second rope And then off the top rope from Luger But Yoko still won't fall And then um, and, and then finally a forearm off the top And Yoko goes down for a two count We get a bulldog by Luger for two We get a double clothesline with both men down Bobby has a great one here He says it's like a divorce Nobody wins (laughs) Which is funny And uh, Fuji tosses the bucket of salt Yoko hits Luger with a bucket But Yoko is so tired He can't even really get over to make a a pin Takes forever Luger's able to kick out at two And this is where Yoko starts to really look exhausted here He's landing some chops he hits the big belly to belly, which I always thought was probably, at least visually, maybe the the most like scary looking of his moves. I always felt like when he hit the belly to belly, it was over because he just was going to crush whoever he he uh, hit it on. Um, but uh, you know, Lex is able to kick out, and Lex is able to kick out of everything here. At one point, 
Vin says, which I thought was hilarious. I've never known an athlete to get this kind of support when the crowd is cheering for Lex. It's like a little bitter at Hogan, maybe. You got two guys on the roster and Brett and Taker who get more support right now. Luger tries to fire up. He goes for a body slam, but he can't get it again. Um, two count. Yoko uh, gets a two count there. And then Yoko pulls Lex over to the corner for the bonsai drop, but Lex moves and Yoko is in big trouble here. A little more back and forth. Yoko bites him, but Lex is able to move out of the way of a splash. He hits a very low, short body slam. And then it looks like Lex is about to win the match. He gets the body slam, which, you know, Hogan couldn't do. And and that was the the real the big thing about the match. Can he slam Yoko? He did it on the intrepid. Can he do it in a match? He nails Fuji. He hits Yoko with the flying forearm. He nails Cornette, but Yokozuna gets knocked outside of the ring and he gets counted out. And then, Darren, what we get here with the bell ringing, the music playing, and the Steiners and Tatanka coming out to celebrate, Macho Man's in the mix. They put Lex Luger on their shoulders. They're waving the flag as balloons drop down. And Vince McMahon says, as if he's won the title, when Lex Luger gets his rematch, he will be WWF champ. But he's saying it like he's already won, which is like, why didn't he just win here? And, and, and this is just what happens after this, which is, I think, what they did for the Coliseum video exclusive. They immediately, they're going from, you know, Lex celebrating, not with the title because he didn't win the title. He won by countout. They go to this package that should have been a package before the match where they're showing him on the road interacting with all these kids what a great guy he is his family sleeping with him on the bus and all this stuff and it it's i mean at the beginning we get military jfk mount rushmore you know and they've even got footage you know clips of of the match spliced in here Darren this just felt so we've talked about how they screwed over Lex. I, you know, I'm, I'm not the biggest Luger fan, but this this right here, this guy had no shot after this. He had no shot. I mean, looking back on this, how it appears, based on the fact that everything around and in this match, other than the finish, tells you that Lex Luger is going to win the title. And what it looks to me is that they literally did everything to that point, except instead of him hitting him with the forearm and getting the pin for the win, they changed it to he's hitting him with the forearm and he fell out of the ring for the countout win. That That's probably literally all they did here, which speaks to the point, everything here tells you that Vince changed his mind at the last possible moment. That this was supposed to be a Lex Luger coronation, that he was supposed to win the title. And when Vince had decided that wasn't going to happen, they just said, to hell with it all. We have too much stuff already planned for what's supposed to happen. Just leave it all and we'll do our best to to figure it out. That's pretty much what happens here. Um, I'm now. I'm surprised that Luger was able to get through this match and post-match the way that he did because we would see times throughout his career, especially after this, where you knew things weren't going Luger's way based on how he performed in the ring. 
Um, he would get sour, and it would show in his work. I didn't get that from this match. No, Watch I agree. Yeah, watching this match, he's into it. He's delivering. He's doing the best that he can. He's by no stretch of the imagination mailing it in. And to be honest with you, the match in and of itself for what it is, is not awful. It's better than I remember. Yeah, it's not awful. Everything around it and what encompasses it is absolutely putrid. But the match itself isn't awful. Um, and... I would look. There's a lot of things that I, if I got the opportunity to sit down with Vince McMahon for an hour and ask him anything that I wanted, and he would have to answer it. One of the things would be, can can you take me through this period of time in 1993? In what the hell happened here? What were you thinking about? When did you change your mind? And and, and find out what the honest answers to all of that actually was. Um, yeah, this completely destroyed any chance Lex Luger hadn't succeeding as a babyface in WWE. Um, look, not the greatest worker in the world. Great look. Didn't cut the best promos in the world either. But, again, he really, really got shit on in WWE and, and never really had the chance. I've got a lot of problems with this match not least of which is all the stuff that happens before. Gino, you mentioned they built it up as a big, gigantic match, and that's one thing. All of the pre-match stuff, starting with the anthems, not even including the interview with the bus driver, starting with the Japanese national anthem, until the bell rings, 11 minutes and 40 seconds. Yep. And it felt it. My goodness. Now, that's not even withstanding the fact that I have several legitimate logistical concerns. So they bring somebody out to sing the Japanese national anthem. Point of order number one, Yokozuna isn't built from Japan. He's built from Samoa, which is an entirely different you know, set of islands. Point of order number two, World War II was 50 years ago. The Japanese are our allies now. Can we maybe get this straight? So they bring Luger out <laughs> to the Sousa March, Stars and Stripes Forever. He gets a pop. It's not a big pop. It's, it's an upper mid-card pop. It's not a, this is the successor to Hulk Hogan pop. This is new. There's been no bill. This is just, this is like immediately happened too. It doesn't like, you know what I mean? They didn't get this marinate at all. Yep. So they start the match. And immediately Vince goes, oh, Yokozuna has bulked up for this matchup. No, he hasn't. He's always been fat. And that's my thing with Yoko. <laughs> Look, if you're going to build him as a monster heel, as a special attraction, whatever, that's fine. I understand it. I know that there are certain things he brings to the table. Bonsai drops a cool finishing move. Fine. If you're going to put a guy like that on and run with him, for nine effing months. You have to have more than he's fat in order for me to care. I don't care at all whatsoever about anything Yokozuna does in the ring. There is no reason for me to. He's just a big fat guy who drops and 
lands on his big rear end from the second rope, and apparently that's <laughs> devastating. Yeah, I yeah. think we've broken I've never gotten him. I've never And you haven't broken me yet. If you didn't break me with the technical mishap earlier and Darren acting like he was on Quake, according to my headset here, and me cutting a ridiculous promo with nothing being recorded, then you're not going to break me now. Do not get me upset. You will not like me when I'm upset. I'm not upset. When I'm upset, you'll know it. <sighs> Goose Brava. Deep breath. Deep breath. Now, the rest of this match is what it is. It's fine. I think there are a lot of comparisons to be made to the Triple H Roman Reigns match from WrestleMania a couple of years ago. The match itself is not the most offensive thing here. The most offensive thing here is the crowd wants none of this, especially once we get to the ending. The ending, by the way, and I know Darren will love this. Gino, have you started watching The West Wing yet? I am in almost to season three. I am okay. flying. Wow! Yep. So flying. here's the thing. I'm happy you said that because you'll get this reference. There's an episode late in season one called Let Bartlett Be Bartlett. And the cold open has him giving a speech that has been moved from a very scenic outdoor location. To this magnificent vista. <laughs> yes, precisely. He gives that speech inside a ballroom because the speechwriters didn't revise the language in time before he got on the stage. That's what this seemed like. This yeah, seemed like, right. eh, it'll be fine. We'll fix it. Da, da, da. Well, they didn't. And Lex Luger was never the same. By the way, I want extra credit for cutting a Bobby Heenan-style promo on the technical mishaps earlier and somehow working in a West Wing reference to the main <laughs> event of SummerSlam 93. You will not get this kind of wrestling discussion anywhere else, people. I'm going to cut his mic every week, Darren. You know, maybe we'll get a, a little more fired up Andrew. Let here. me tell you a personal story. You know the Be a Star campaign? <laughs> uh, um, but, I mean, we... And when Andrew was talking about time being wasted, so the bell rings. And most of the shows that we watch, bell rings, a little bit of celebration. There's probably a minute, two minutes. Some of the Hogan shows are a little bit longer. Occasionally you'll get some shows where WWF would do a sort of recap right at the end and sort of, you know, quickly in 30 seconds give a, a a still shot or two of each of the matches and angles that went throughout the show. We get 7 minutes from when the bell rings between the celebration, the weird out of place video. I mean, it's so out of order, it's insane. It really doesn't make any sense. And then they come backstage and well, they first they go to ringside. Yokozuna is still out, so this is six minutes later. Yokozuna is still knocked out by the forearm. Then they go backstage, and Lex Luger is back there with the Steiners, Tatanka, and Macho Man. And to be fair, I don't mind. I kind of like starting a new angle at the end of a show. I don't mind that. I think it's kind of a cool. Hey, look, this is where we're gonna go moving forward. This guy didn't win yet Like he's still got unfinished business with Yokozuna Obviously like what are we doing Here I, I mean and they're still celebrating Backstage like he won the title We're gonna sound like a broken Record because you have to be when you Watch this and you go what Are they doing how did he think this was Good for Lex and I agree with you Darren in that Lex didn't have that Face 
And he didn't really even have it with the way he worked in this match. He didn't work poorly in the match. It's you're you're just never gonna get anything great from these two. And I I think Lex was probably in his head going, okay, this is the very beginning of this character for me. You know, I I don't really have any reason not to believe Vince. He's made me into a main eventer so far. He says he's gonna give me the title, and this guy is gonna be you know, I I, look. He put me on this Lex Express. We're doing all this thing. Sure, he's gonna do it. You know, I I don't. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna be a good soldier here, and then you know, in two months at Survivor Series, I'll probably win the title. And he. You know, unfortunately, he got screwed, and he he you know he's not the the greatest worker in the world, but this was the time, and they created him to be the champ, and he should have been the champ. Like this is one of the things you look back in WWF history, honestly, and and it's the one of the bigger head scratchers ever that this character they created did not get a little run with the title at least right here. Yeah, I mean, if you think about like how everything. You know, got botched up here. I mean, you know, from from Hogan not wanting to drop the belt to Brett, so you get nine months of Yoko mismanaging their heels. You get this nonsense. The Survivor Series show leaves a lot to be desired. Um, then you get into '94, and you get the two of them winning the Rumble at the same time. Then you have to watch Yokozuna wrestle twice at WrestleMania 10, which is a great show. But, you know, that show, I mean, the that Brett-Owen match could have been for the title. You could have had Brett Luger for the title, which would have been a cool match to have in the annals of wrestling history. I mean, if you think about how much this all got sidetracked and screwed up because of what was going on, um, it, it's pretty remarkable about how different the wrestling landscape from April of 93 to April of 94 and even beyond would have looked. Had they have been able to just keep their plan in place with Hogan and Brett and what they were looking to do moving forward, um, it would have been almost an entirely different company. It's pretty wild to think about. Uh, and because Darren, is there really quick? And I'm sorry to interrupt, but is there anything that you won't blame Hulk Hogan for? <laughs> that I won't blame Hulk Hogan for. I mean, <laughs> maybe maybe if his horse loses. I mean. Know. You know, no, I can. I mean, I could. You can. So we can figure that that out. Yeah, we'll I find can, a way. I could see that. I could. I could definitely find a way. Yeah. I mean, it, I definitely blame him for the Yankees losing. Sure. Uh, you know, I'll probably blame him for the Giants. You know, being a hapless franchise. Now, I'll find a way to do that. Um, I. You know what? I won't blame on him. I won't blame the coronavirus on him. I'll give him that. Thank you. Okay, there we go. That's, that's progress. And that's good. You know, that's like you... the segment that Andrew talks about, you know, say something nice. And Darren yeah. knocked it out of the park there. You're making oh, real oh. progress. I'm yeah. proud of you. <laughs> I'll go on record as saying that Hulk Hogan, Hulk Hogan is not patient zero of COVID-19. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've watched South Park, uh, the South Park pandemic special, but... Uh, yeah. By the way, I, I'll blame I'll blame another thing on him. You could blame so here's another thing you could blame on him. He's at the center of the steroid scandal in WWE. You know, you lose Bulldog. You Bret Hart versus Ultimate Warrior was supposed to be the title match at Royal Rumble '93. I don't know if you guys knew that. Uh, I actually read that the other day in in some of my research for this show. So I could blame him for that not happening. I could blame him for being this kind of like skinny version of himself. In the spring of 93. And to be honest with you, 
if you watch this show, and I don't really remember it, but looking back, Luger looks like he's like 25 pounds light here, doesn't he? He does. Yeah. A little bit, yeah. And they mention that, which is funny, because they do, they're doing a lot of things to take shots at Hulk Hogan. You could tell Vince, you know, he even says at the King of the Ring match, they say the same thing about Hogan, that Hogan yep. slimmed down to try to be quicker against Yoko. And it obviously doesn't work for Hogan, but the slimming down does work for Lex. I mean, I guess he wins the match, but he doesn't win the title. And um, it, yeah, it's just, it's unfortunate because. This, you know, you look at the the players on this show And you go, okay, well we've got If we could move around, you know, Brett, Undertaker, Shawn Michaels, Mr. Perfect You know, and just kind of slot them into different places It could be a pretty good show It, it, It just, nothing really worked And this is one of the shows where, I mean, we've had shows with really, really bad stuff But I don't know if we've had a show like this where there's it might have been that six man tag That's the best match on the show It really might have You know we this is probably one of the lower Ceiling shows as far as like best Match of the show that we've had to deal with so far Yeah I completely Agree um, you know Look I like I said I picked this show Because there's a lot of political stuff going on Behind the scenes it's a very strange Time from WWE it's an important Time from WWE it's a Transitional time for WWE and and we can't pretend like 1993 didn't happen. So at some point we have to, you know, kind of re- if we're going to go through all these shows, we have to review this and and talk about it. But yeah, it's it is an absolutely garbage show. Um, I don't. I listen. I I can't say definitively it's the worst SummerSlam of all time. I would need to go back and watch them. But I will say this, Andrew, off the top of my head, I can't think of one that was worse. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. Um, And it's not like there wasn't good stuff on here. I love the six-man match. I will unabashedly say that. That's a 12-minute match that I think you could watch five different times and come away with five different things that you've seen that you really like about it. That's a genuinely good match. You get a good Steiner Brothers match. Okay, that's good. You get a decent opener with Ted DiBiase and Razor Ramon. Okay, that's good. You get one, two, three kid flying around for five minutes. That's pretty good. But it goes back to what I said at the top of the show. Basically, what you get here is a tight hour 30, hour 45 show that gets stretched out to almost three hours. And needlessly so with all of the nonsense that WWF insisted on putting in here. You had the Brett stuff that went on for 10 or 12 minutes longer than it could have. You had the stuff before the main event that lasted almost 12 freaking minutes because we really needed two national anthems and big entrances and whatnot for the match that we wound up getting. No, 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 no. I mean, maybe an hour and a half is a little unrealistic, but you're telling me they couldn't have done that in a tight two hours. I mean, it's just that this was a tough watch. And there were a couple of matches that were fun, but wrestling's supposed to be fun from start to finish, and this just wasn't. This was probably, of everything that we've watched so far, dating back to when we first started doing this, this was probably the toughest watch that I have had from start to finish. Okay, well, I think, I think I'm going to give you a, a, an easier watch Thank you Next, next week coming up it was, it was between two But I, I'm going to leave the, I'll tell you the one I didn't pick Because 
I will pick it eventually, or Andrew will. I was is Bash at the Beach '96. I mean, okay. that's an, that's an inevitable one that we're going to get to with the NWO Hogan, you know, everything happening there. But I wanted to go to one that I thought maybe would have a little bit better work rate, and this is me personally one of my absolute favorite pay per views of all time, and this is probably one of the more recent ones that we've gone to. We're going to go to 2011. And we're going to go to Money in the Bank. Oh, CM Punk in Chicago. We nice. got CM Punk, John Cena. We've got a really good Christian Randy Orton match for the World Heavyweight Championship in there. We've got the Money in the Bank matches with Daniel Bryan, Cody Rhodes, Heath Slater, Justin Gabriel, Kane, Sin Cara, Sheamus, and Barrett in one. The other one is Del Rio, Riley, Evan Bourne, Jack Swagger, Kofi, The Miz, R Truth, Mysterio. And there's a really fun Mark Henry Big Show match. On the card too So this isn't uh, going to be 10 matches But we're going to have a couple that are long That are good quality That are important This is one of the You know, I mean of the last You know, 2020 now Of the last decade If you're making a list of the biggest matches of the decade This has to be on any top 5 list If you're talking WWE Nice, I'm yeah. looking forward to that Yeah, I've actually I've actually seen like uh, a few uh, a few um, articles when when they've ranked, you know, the top pay per views and, and stuff like that. I've actually seen this in the top three sometimes. It's great. Uh, it yeah, is great. It, it's a damn good show. Uh, a lot of stuff. I mean, look, the, what, what Punk was doing back then was 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 not seen before. And look, I while we knew you know what was scripted in WWE, they did such a good job where they had you. They had you thinking that, you know, maybe maybe there was really some shit going on where Punk was really trying to screw Vince over, and you know he convinced Vince to let him win the match, and he was just gonna take off with the belt and and like you know show up somewhere else the next day. Like there was some wild stuff going on behind the scenes back then too. Yeah, so, that's uh, gonna be so much fun, and I'm looking forward to that. I mean, that crowd wanted Cena not just to lose but to be killed. That yeah. was something that. WWE has tried to recreate a lot in the past nine years, that kind of atmosphere. And I honestly can't tell you that they did it. It's just a shame that they wasted the summer of punk with the angle they wound up running later that year where cash text himself. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And um, which is cool. We'll have a ton to talk about leading up to this and the things that happen after this. So money in the bank, 2011 is our next Project and we'll be talking about That one next week Darren let us know what's going on with you uh, Rest of the week into the weekend and where can we follow you And then uh, Andrew close us out Well before I before I say that Just a quick question so You said you're flying through it what is your early Take on the West Wing Oh my god you, the, the thing about it is I, the, One of the reasons why I don't think I had watched It so far was in in my Head I had a completely wrong Idea of what the show was I thought yeah. it was much more of a like NCIS sort of serious po- political show and not at all the great I mean like any good show it's it's based on the characters right you could take these group of characters that are built take them out of the white house put them in a different spot and it the, the characters are what make the show obviously the setting of the white house is what's cool too but it's the writing is great it's funny I love it I like you you like what 
all of the characters too In a world of, of where in TV nowadays There's so many shows where they make these characters And there's shows all the time Even even shows like Succession or them which, which are very good shows It's like you look around Who the hell am I supposed to like? Everybody's a bad guy on this show you know. And, and it's, it's opposite You just love every character on the show It is it is phenomenal And there are so many people I didn't realize were on that show You know from you know even just Rob Lowe is phenomenal and Janie's phenomenal Whitford's phenomenal just I'm and Stephanie loves watching it with me now it's nice the Lakers are done um and and won it so I've got more time in the evenings and when the baseball playoffs are over I'm going to be I mean I'm I'm going to finish with that soon cuz I know there's a special either coming up or something that just happened and I <laughs> I was like I I got to make sure I'm ready to watch this thing soon yeah, they're they're kind of they're re they're redoing um, one of the episodes, um, which uh, is kind of centered around the uh, kind of centered around the the election, um, where it's about this small town that votes before everybody else does, and they're kind of redoing it in like a play kind of setting. Um, so it's gonna be it's gonna be really cool to watch. But uh, you said you're you're up to season three. Um, yeah, I think I'm the very end of season two, almost into season three. So yeah, I've I've gotten through them real quick and. To, There's definitely to, been some nights where I'm I'm up two hours later than I should have because I got caught watching you know three more episodes or or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Andrew, Andrew, season two from like seventeen people through two cathedrals. In my money, two cathedrals is probably the best episode in the history of the show. So, um, but you get when when you get into season three, when you get from like the two Bartlets through the end of the the season in Passe Comitatus. You get like a run of ten episodes. It's just it's ridiculous. Like, when the West Wing was good, it was one of the best episodic shows in the history of television. I'd go back a little further in season two because the Stackhouse filibuster is one of my favorite episodes of its entire run. I think that was an episode or two before seventeen people, and that's right just a perfect yeah. balance. Yeah, the one right before it. Yeah. So yep. so now when you get through all this, Gino, we have to do a West Wing. hundred percent. And I appreciate the assist on this because I I take trust both of your opinions so much that having heard you talk about it so highly, I figured, okay, I gotta give it a few. And I was instantly, instantly hooked. Just immediately. Absolutely cool. love it. And um did did not take long for me to get into. So can't wait to discuss that more with you. Andrew, uh, do you have anything on tap for the uh, Champagne and JD this week? Well, this week we're starting to piece it together now. We're recording this on a Tuesday night. We'll be recording Champagne and JD on Thursday. Uh, the big thing this week is actually down under in Australia as they are going to be looking at the Everest, which is their version of the Pegasus World Cup. Everybody ponies up an outrageous amount of money for some of the slots. It's a turf sprint down there. So we'll be taking a good look at that. We've started looking at some of our guests this week. Unfortunately, we had no show last week. And I'll dive in a little bit because you guys will appreciate this. Between my co-host falling ill last week, thankfully he is far better, and the guest that we had lined up doing something no guest has done to us, he ghosted us. However, however, I'm not going to name names on this show. I will say, though... That karma came to collect a couple days later because that trainer lost a brutal photo finish <laughs> at a major track over the weekend. I'm just saying karma comes to collect and works in very mysterious ways. 
I've been been very lucky. I haven't had uh, too many um, of, of those. And what's nice is that well, I know that it, when I do, I've got a couple guys off the bench that have helped me out with wrestling, with horse racing, breaking big races down, any other sports you want to talk about. Two of my best buds, Darren Zocali, Andrew Champagne. It was uh, a lot of fun talking with you again. It's funny. It felt like it's been three weeks, I think, since we did a wrestling show. And after doing them so often, even some weeks where we did two, you know, it, it, when there was not a whole lot going on. It, it was uh, it, it was fun to get back at talking with you again, and I look forward to watching Money in the Bank. And, uh, you know, listen, in, New York, in New York right now, between the Yankees being out, the Giants and the Jets being a combined 0-10, Le'Veon Bell getting cut today. Thankfully, I'm a Giant fan. But anyway, there's nothing going on in New York. Right now. <laughs> so, so I have nothing to watch. I can't watch the Rays versus the Astros. Like Anything you need me to talk about, believe me, I got nothing but time. Love it. I'm going to milk you on that too. (laughs) And I always do with you, Andrew. Um, Thanks again so much, guys. And I look forward to talking to you uh, about Money in the Bank next week. So uh, Darren Zocali, Andrew Champagne, like always here, talking on an old wrestling rewatch on That's What G Said. Don't go anywhere, folks. We'll take a quick break, but plenty more where that came from. A big thank you to Andrew, to Darren for talking some wrestling there with us. Love that old wrestling rewatch. And don't forget about our next one, Money in the Bank 2011. So uh, again, thanks to this week's guest, Alex Regla, talking Lakers, Andrew and Darren. Next week coming up, that Lakers celebration show. If you want to be a part of it, let me know. Reach out. If you want to share some of your thoughts, your memories, your jubilation over the Lakers title win, we'll continue on with the NFL coverage. We will discuss what's happening in the MLB World Series. We will know what the World Series looks like. Come on, Dodgers. Come on, Dodgers. College football. We'll start getting into college football a, a little bit more as uh, as NBA now and and. Baseball will be winding down and racing the Breeders' Cup only a few weeks away. So like always, we'll have tons of racing coverage. The Mandalorian is going to start soon. So I'm going to be recapping episodes of Mandalorian when that starts in a few weeks. We're going to get back into a couple different TV shows that we'll be recapping. So much to look forward to on That's What G Said. And again, thank you to our sponsors Thrive Fantasy. Promo code GINO will get you that bonus, instant bonus when you deposit at least 20 Old Smoke Clothing, promo code G-I-N-O there. will get you free shipping on your order. SarahCandles.com, all-natural soy wax candles, promo code G-I-N-O, 10% off your purchase. Cindy Carava, full-service realtor. If you need anything going on in the uh, in the world of real estate, make sure to contact her. And then over at Stable Duel, those daily horse racing contests if you have any questions about stable duel let me know download that app and get involved in the big ones this weekend that huge contest at keeneland on saturday with a five thousand dollar prize pool at a 25 dollar entry folks make sure to share the show around with your friends and hope you all have a great weekend thanks again folks joey cleveland my good friend let's have that that's what g said theme song